All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the third episode of Breaking Chains from Surviving to Thriving. My guest today, and this happens to be her favorite number, her lucky number, three, is Nikki. And she goes by sometimes Darling Nikki. Mm. She is a darling. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, okay, first off, this is just real talk, two people together. So if there's any noises, ambulances going by, whatever, Mm -hmm. it's life, right? So tell me what your mornings look like now. It's funny. I don't, I get to wake up and not come to, and, uh, you know, I get to recover in a phenomenal little town and, uh, I don't wake up to sirens or anything like that. So, um, and like I said, I wake up and I don't come to, um, I have the honor and privilege of being rescued by an amazing little dog and cat that uh, I wake up to my face being licked and the cat meowing to be fed. And, you know, my youngest son usually pops his head in and lets me know um, my coffee's ready. And I he, love that. And he always asks me, how did I sleep? And how old is he? He's 13. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And, you know, when I got sober, he was three. And, uh, yeah, we'll get definitely into that part. But when I was when he was three, I our life shifted. There was a huge shift and didn't realize that uh, we were existing and not living. So today, yeah. the questions that get asked by a 13-year-old kind of stopped me in my track. So how did I sleep? And I get to do a quick morning reflection and I'll say, and I'll tell him, oh, I, I slept well. Um, I didn't sleep well. And he'll always yeah. ask, did I dream? Really? So, yes. He'll ask me, did you dream? You know, and I'll, and I'll tell him no. And he's like, oh, okay. Um, you know, and obviously before I, before my feet touch the bed, off the bed and they touch the ground, um, I don't always hit my knees. Normally it's at night. But when I wake up, I do a little check-in, a morning check-in, a spiritual chin shake, which I call it. And I, I remind check. myself of what I'm grateful for. Yeah. I woke up and I didn't come to. I'm grateful for my own toothbrush. Yeah. I'm grateful for that fresh cup of coffee waiting for me in the kitchen. I'm grateful that my son feels safe enough to be with me, to live with me. Um, I have so much, so much to be grateful for. And I have a lot of things, you know, I'm grateful for what I have and I'm grateful for what I don't have. There's a reason why I don't have it. So I do that little morning and it's, it's like two, three minutes. It's usually not a long drawn out thing. And, and other mornings I get up and I, 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 you know, I snooze my alarm you know, I just kind of reach over, reach over, snooze my alarm. And before you know it, it's time to go to work. And I don't have time. That, that coffee goes in a to-go cup and I'm in the car. And, you know, thank God for um, working so close to home. That's a blessing in disguise that I don't have to fight traffic, you know, um, other than a few stop lights and a few stop signs, you know. Right, right. Definitely. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So what I will do is I'll probably ask questions and I'll just let you speak your okay. truth. Okay. And we'll just take it question by question and segment by segment. Sounds good. All right. So do you feel like a victim of your life? No. I think when I'm coming into sobriety, into recovery, absolutely. I had a very victimized mentality. I felt that everything that had happened, I deserved, um, whether it was because of, you know, my demoralizing acts, I had it coming. But thankfully, the, the steps, the digging deep, uh, seeking therapy, the outside help, um, working with a sponsor who deals with a lot of trauma work has really helped me realize that, you know, it, I took a part, I had a part in every, every single scenario that I went through, right. whether it was being in a toxic, unhealthy, verbally, physically abusive relationship, 
whether it was um, allowing myself to be the other woman in a relationship, whether it was, you know, watching my children get physically, verbally abused by their father because I felt like I didn't have a choice. Today, I know I have a choice, you know. So the difference between how my thought process of coming into, coming to be, you know, coming to be a new version of Nikki, I found out that I was a victim of domestic violence. Um, I just thought I'd like to poke the bear and I like to fight. Okay. Um, I was a my defense mechanism was to strike before getting hit. I didn't like the bad mouthing, so I would right away, uh, it was like flight or fight for me, and I don't run away from things except reality, but I love to fight. So (laughs) it was definitely for me something where uh, I didn't consider myself a victim of any situation. Um, I just felt like that's what I had coming. That was my mentality. Like, this is what I get for dot, 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 right? That dot, dot, dot has a whole different meaning for me today. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So tell me, and this may be kind of an odd question, Mm -hmm. what is your favorite thing or your favorite thing about life in your disease? In my disease? Wow. While you were active. When I was actively in my disease, well, I think a lot of it is that I was so carefree where I didn't have many worries other than my next fix. I didn't care about being late to work. I didn't care about getting fired. I didn't care if I hurt my mom's feelings or if I kept her up at night. I didn't care if me being uh, promiscuous or stepping out of a relationship was going to hurt this other individual's feelings. You know, so I didn't have, I I used to always say like I was part of the brainless race. Like I didn't have any feelings or emotions. I just operated, you know, I was like a robot. Like I had to do this to get that. And once I had that, what was I going to do next? You know? Okay. So I would say like the biggest gift was that I couldn't really feel. There was no emotion about it. And if I started to feel shame or guilt, I would drink and use over it, you know? And just like that, it'd be over. It was just like we do. Just like we do. I would numb. I would scape. I would mask and I would okay. run. So I would say like not dealing with the consequences. And obviously, you know, they say every dog has his day. Eventually that caught up to me, you know. Right. And so, we will get into that. Okay. I can't wait. I can't wait either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm going to ask one more question that I'm probably just going to let you loose. Okay. Because okay. I've heard your story and it's amazing. Thank you. And you're definitely a survivor and... Um, full of hope and gratitude. Absolutely. So, okay, so how did you overcome the favorite thing to get clean and sober? So, I don't think I overcame it, like, initially. It didn't happen overnight. You know, I have this saying where I didn't burn everything down in one day. Okay. You know, and so therefore it took a long time to to recover to amend, to repair. So obviously, I guess the answer would be I stopped doing those things and that was one way of overcoming. Another thing is I relocated and not like I did the geographic, but I got to move and be closer to my children. So that changed my playgrounds and playmates, right? Which kind of changed the game for me. And I would say the biggest thing is I left that toxic, unhealthy relationship, you know, and with that came no more anxiety medication, uh, no more having to look over my shoulder, no more shaking when that person walked into the room or having to hold my breath because I didn't know what type of um, mood that person would be in. So when when that person got removed from my, my presence, like that was a huge way to overcome it. But it was just the beginning of, of the healing process. So the overcoming took a long time. I mean, it took more than just going to meetings and abstaining from drinking and using. It took 
digging and uncovering and discovering and discarding. So I didn't just not pick up and use and all of a sudden I didn't feel like a victim and all of a sudden I cared and all of a sudden I was grateful to feel uh, that came with time. Right. Because nobody just gets dropped off and all of a sudden like um, you start seeing pink clouds and all of a sudden you, you recognize the birds tripping like that wasn't my story. My story was basically um, like I really had to work at gaining some sanity back okay. of um, being able to see what reality really was because I lived this distorted perception of what life was really about. Right. You know, and it wasn't just because of that relationship. It was just the way I was raised, you know, yeah. and and then choosing to leave my family's home to be about that street life and what comes with that lifestyle. Right. You know, and doing it for so long, trying to reorientate myself into what life really is about, the reality yeah. of, of daily living. Okay. You know, um, okay. drinking and using is just but a symptom. So yeah. living life on life's terms um, that's a huge thing to overcome, you know, <laughs> even for a person who doesn't drink or use, Yeah, you know, getting to feel once you're clean and sober is terrifying and painful, or at least in my case it was, yeah. and I'm still learning to feel and be okay with feeling. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's cunning and baffling. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> it absolutely will stop you in your tracks. You know, yeah. uh, we don't give, we're not given a manual to live life. Yeah. You know, we're given certain tools and sometimes we reject those tools because we yeah. think we're being told what to do, That's you know, true. but when someone uses the proper verbiage, this is a suggestion, Yeah. you know, um, then you, it, it's taken differently because of how it's delivered or, or the approach on a situation. So right. recovery has given me like that new way of looking at life. Like these are suggestions. I'm not demanding and I'm not expecting because ultimately as alcoholics or addicts or, or survival survivors in on all, whether it's mental health or physical abuse or sexual abuse, we don't recover just because that person is no longer in our life right. or because that chapter in our life has been closed. Like we still have the residual feelings that last sometimes a lifetime. So, but it's yeah. a matter of how to process them. That's good. Um, I had to compartmentalize my feelings at one point because it became overwhelming on top of dealing what was directly in front of me at the time. Yeah. That was a long version, but the overcoming <laughs> of like, how did that, it came with time, you know? Okay. And I was told like, give yourself a break. Like you didn't F things up overnight and you're not going to fix them overnight, you know? Right. And realizing that I was not in control was like one of the best tools that I could like I think it was the first tool in my tool belt was you don't control a situation right you're you don't get to play god you don't get to run the show anymore you already know how that looks like you already know how that turned out how difficult was it for you to realize you didn't run the show anymore um it was ego deflating because in my mind, I, I had to run things. Right. Otherwise, they would not come out right or perfect. Okay. And in the life that I lived, if I didn't get things done, then they wouldn't get done. So in a okay. sense, I have, again, that distorted perception that I had to run the show. Okay. You know? And it's almost like you come in here and you tell me, well, that's not the way we do things here. And I, and I couldn't fathom the thought that I had to take my hands off the wheel. Okay. You know? And when I did... It had claw marks all over it. Anything okay. I took my hands off of, anything, yeah. the relationship with my children, 
the ex-husband, the disease, uh, that lifestyle, everything that you can put in front of me, when I took my hands off of it, there was claw marks on it. I, I fought to keep it. But my sister told me, my older sister, is that God has this amazing, precious gift for you. And here you are holding on to everything that you know because of the fear of the unknown. You won't fully surrender, right? Okay, yeah. But your hand is over here because you're greedy and you're like, okay, give it to me. But you don't want to let go of this, you know? Okay. And, and the, way, the way God works is, or your higher power works, you know, or the, the gift of the program, whichever program you choose to choose a membership from is you have to literally surrender to win. You must let go, let God. And, and, and there's such a, such a big gift that it requires both your hands. Yeah. So when I finally did that, like, and again, it didn't happen like, like that. As soon as it was done, I, I was like, okay, so now what? Cause that's my thought <laughs> process. So yeah. I did it. Now what? Okay. And they're like, now you wait. Okay. So hands off the wheel, go into the slow lane you know, and, okay. and again, I'm not the type of person. I, I'm not very patient. I'm not very compassionate. I'm not very understanding. And I know more than you, so I'm going to show you and I'm going to tell you how to do it. And my whole motto was smarter, not harder. But really, I, I chased my tail. You know, yeah. I, dug, I dug deeper. You know, I had the shovel. I had to put the shovel down and stop digging. Yeah. That was mind-blowing for me, for sure. Absolutely. That's a lot of wisdom. And that's one reason why I love your program, Mm -hmm. that you work, that you walk, you live. I met you through another friend of ours. And it's like instantaneously I felt a connection. We come from different places, but you're so strong in your program and your raw transparent and honest and um that means the world to me because if it wasn't for women in the program that are transparent like that even though my bottom may not be the same as somebody else's Mm. it gives me hope and how long do you have clean and sober by the Um, way i have a sobriety date of july 25th 2011 okay okay so you are you are living it yeah you're living it and you mean it okay so I'm just going to let you free right now. So listeners, she is going to get into the meat of this podcast right now. Hmm. And it might be rated R. I've heard (laughs) her speak before, but it might be Walt Disney this time. I don't know. So listen at your own discretion, but go ahead and explain um, where you came from, where you're at and what it's like now and take as long and in depth as you want to go. I might interrupt with questions. Please do. But um, I'll try to let you talk. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to take a quick moment just to pause, invite my God into this conversation so uh, I can leave ego and pride out of this conversation and be my genuine self. Okay. They say there's God in the pause, you know, and um, my my life today is God is everything or God is nothing. So, right. um, so yeah, I, I did mention I have a sobriety of 72511. Uh, I did not choose that date. 
I did not choose to want to get sober, and I sure as hell didn't want to stay sober. So uh, I always say uh, it's by the grace of God. You know, I, I've He has shown me His mercy and His grace that I have an opportunity to live and no longer exist. You know. Okay. So what it was like. Um, I come from a home where uh, it's a broken home. My mother divorced my father when I was. Um, four years old. My father was an alcoholic and an addict and a gambler. And my mother already had two uh, older children from two previous marriages. My, my father was the third husband. Okay. As to why number three is super symbolic for me. And um, when my mother married my father, she married, my mother is Mexican, my father is Greek. So two immigrants come to America for the American dream, you know, to pursue freedom and prosperity. And they meet here. And like most Greeks, my dad owns restaurants. And like most Mexicans, they're in the kitchen. So my mother was in the kitchen working along with my father. Um, you know, that relationship. I, my mother's a little bit codependent as well. So, okay. you know, then you get me. That's, that's, that's a great, <laughs> it's a perfect blend of all of that, you know. And my, uh, my mother and father marry. And my father's disease of alcoholism, drug addiction, um, and gambling really kicks off and... In, in his country, in Greece, you nap, like there's a siesta every day, you know? And, and he told me when he came to America, it was like living life literally in the fast lane. There was no okay. slow button for him. Um, and I, I definitely drank and used like him, um, but I stayed away from the gambling because I already knew where that would take me. Okay. So my mother and father marry, by the time um, I am four, they are divorced. You know, a quick little backstory with them. When they go to get divorced, um, for good old time's sake, they go to Vegas to celebrate their divorce. And my mother comes back pregnant with my younger sister. <laughs> and so they attempt to make it work. And obviously it's dysfunctional because okay. it doesn't. And so my mother ends up leaving my father a second time and ends up marrying his best friend, you know. Okay. Um, for me, I always look back as my, as my very first resentment because that man took the place of my mother's love for me. Okay. Um, you know, every child wants their parents together regardless of how bad the situation is. Yeah. Um, so that stepfather of mine, I, um, I grew to hate. I despised okay. him. There was a point in my teenage years that I um, put a contract out on him. I didn't like him. Oh. I didn't want him in my contract life. Contract as in dispose oh, of him okay no longer exist um okay. i have two older brothers and my oldest i have a greek irish german brother who happens to be one of us and he's in recovery okay. and then i have a hispanic brother who's like a south sider and okay. growing up those were my two heroes i wanted to be just like them okay um i was not a girly girl growing up i didn't do my little pony i didn't play hopscotch i didn't do double dutch <laughs> i was the girl like with the chalk tagging up the walls instead of like the the asphalt, you know, in the playground. And, you know, after school, I'm in the riverbed um, with spray cans with the, okay. all the boys and, you know, smoking weed, um, consuming NAS, you know, which is basically like the CO2 tanks. And okay. you, we would jump on bikes after inhaling this and play chicken with the cars on the street. Like very, oh my goodness. very um, free spirited. Like I said, my disease didn't yeah. allow me to give zero fucks. I didn't care. Um, if I was hurt, not hurt, if you hurt because of my actions, it didn't matter. Okay. I had fun. Like I always said, I'm going to live life to the fullest. I'm going to drink and use to the day I die. Okay. You know, at one point I vowed to be like the girl version of Snoop Dogg because I smoked so much <laughs> weed. 
those were my heroes, you know. Um, you know, moving on, when my brothers got old enough, they both, um, you know, got in trouble with the law. Okay. You know, one of them ended up going away for strong-arm robbery. The other one went from being a gang member to being a junkie, you know, okay. and then serving time for, like, petty theft and possession of. And, okay. you know, um, and so they went away. And so once my heroes were gone, um, I had to find new low companions to, like keep the party going okay around the age of 15 um my father got really ill and my um my sister allowed me to go see him so my mother doesn't know this part so now it's gonna be public she um my sister drove me back to LA because we were living in the Oceanside area and um and she flew me out to Sacramento and allowed me to be with my father for, for a few weeks Okay. And uh, that was like uh, that was like in August, summer of um, '93, and uh, when I came back from that trip in Sacramento, um, that was a, my my dad actually kind of making amends for me, like for being not being present. I'm sorry for like not being able to show up. Your mother didn't want me there. Okay. And I recalled being a little girl, my mom telling me, you know, saying all the things that disgruntled mother say about the baby daddy and telling right. me like Nikki you got to go tell your dad when he when he decides to show up like he would say I'm on my way and it would be sometimes two hours sometimes two days sometimes two weeks he, I'd be waiting for him at the door or right. on the curb and she finally said like you need to tell your dad like you can't see him anymore and this is all his fault and I remember telling right. him and like it broke my heart it broke his heart so summer of 93 was the last time I saw him. And um, 93 was a really, like, crazy year for me. My my grandmother, uh, my mom's mom passed away. Uh, my niece died of crib death at two and a half months old. Oh, my. Um, I was a freshman in high school, and we were living in Oceanside because my stepfather owned restaurants, and that's what we did. We would go where the money was. Okay. And um, I was going to Oceanside High School, and, um, you know, it was senior ditch day, and I'm a freshman, and I want to go hang with the with the big boys, and that's exactly what I did. I ended up going with uh, two seniors because my friends were like, "We're not going to ditch. Go ahead." And I was already in party mode. I couldn't okay. go to first period. I was on party mode. I already consumed a few things, whether uh, whether it was pills or smoked some weed or took a swig of something. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, finding these two individuals who um, they were part of the varsity football team um they were part of the cool crowd and uh i had a a biology class with one of them and i remember them like hey are you gonna go and i was like yeah but my friends aren't gonna want to go and they're like well come hang out with us so i did of course right because um how do you say no you know i don't have any boundaries let alone do i value myself to leave campus with two boys Right. So I leave campus. So we go back to one of the guys' house, and we're drinking 40s because that's my choice of drink at the time. I drink 40s straight out the freezer, whether it's Old English um, or Mickey's. And um, and I remember drinking watching Beavis and Butthead, and the next thing I remember is I'm coming to, and um, and I'm I'm being raped. Like, I'm in the act okay. of this act that I did not consent to. Right. And I, I remember, like, I, I, it's like, it's like it comes and goes, it comes and goes. And I remember um, coming to, and I remember trying to push this varsity football player off of me, and I can't, because I'm, I'm assuming I was drugged, because mm-hmm. I, I used to drink 40s like nothing. So right. this was, this, something was off. And I remember that day, like, telling myself, like, oh, my God, how'd this happen? It's like, well, duh, you're defiant. You did school. You left campus with two boys. You got in the car, and you're consuming alcohol with them. Mm-hmm. That was nothing new to me. 
I had been doing that since the day I picked up a drink since I was nine years old, you know? And the second I picked up that drink, I I never stopped. It was like the merry-go-round. My feet never touched the ground. So this was nothing new. But here I was in a very dark corner with two very low companions. And um, I I don't remember a lot of it because it does come and go throughout the years. And I think that has a lot to do with whether it's me trying to keep myself safe from not having those memories of what happened right or or me not really being fully coherent you know because of what had happened but I do recall telling the person like you know when he finally got off of me I remember there was blood everywhere uh he had taken my virginity and um oh goodness and I remember um his other friend was like I'm next and being very like boastful about like what had happened um and I remember, like, saying something like, like, shut the fuck up or, like, get, get out or I don't remember. Like, it was just, I was angry. So I remember I said, right. I lashed out. And then he came at me like, like, bitch, shut the fuck up or you're going to get what's coming to you. Like, you think Sam got it. I'm going to get it good. Like, something like that. And I remember, like, trying to get up and, like, I just couldn't. Like, my feet couldn't touch yeah. the ground. My, my legs were weak. I remember trying to leave the room and I was literally just bumping in, like, walls. It was, like, it was a horrible feeling. Uh, and that's... Because of that, I never just drank. I always made sure I did a lot of uppers because I felt like I lost, like, I lost consciousness because I lost control. And this is why I felt throughout my years I had to control a situation. Okay. Good, bad, or indifferent, I had to control a situation. And I remember going into the living room and, like, trying to find my clothes and it was scattered. Like, I don't even know how I got from being on the couch drinking a 40 watching Beavis and Butthead to being in a bedroom waking up with blood everywhere with Sam on top of me and um I remember telling him take me take me home um and he's like you can't go home like look at you what is your mom gonna say um so he ended up taking me to that ditching party I remember getting there and my friends were there okay and I told him like what the fuck like you guys said that you weren't coming and like so I was angry like had we had you told me you were coming just to go to class, I would have like none of this would have happened. Right. But I'm ashamed, so I can't talk about it. Right. Are you blaming yourself at this point? At this point, I'm blaming them. Okay. Right. Like okay. they're the reason this happened. Okay. Like I don't know my part at this point. Okay. Um, I remember um telling the the guy who owned the house um like hey Mike I gotta go lay down like, and he's like what's wrong with you and and he said you had a hickey on your neck and I'm like what. And so I go and I lay down, lay down in his room and I, I don't know how long I passed out for because when I got there, there was few people in the home. And then when I wake up, however long later, the house, the house is just vibing. There's music, there's laughter, you know, you can smell the weed. You can, you can hear, you can hear everybody drinking and the ice and the bottles and the trash, like clinging. And then, um, Sam comes in and he's like, I want my ring back. And I, and I'm waking up like, what are you talking about? And I, somehow I had like a ring on my finger and Ugh. like, I don't know, is this my, am I dreaming? Am I having a nightmare? Is this reality? Yeah. So eventually I get out of the room and I go into the backyard and, and I'm telling my friends like, like, they're like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I don't know. And I'm holding my head cause it's, it's pounding. It's hurting me. And, um, and then directly behind me, um, Sam has like a bunch of cousins and uncle, uh, cousins and brothers that go to our school that are closer to my grade and one of his cousins was um like hey yo nikki uh it's my turn how about you come over here like talking like that okay and my friends are like what what the hell's going on what is he talking about and and i'm like oh nothing you know and and they're like what happened and i was like nothing can you just take me home and i remember they're like yeah yeah let's go so we exit the the senior ditch tape 
you know, party and we get in the car and apparently this, this individual, Sam had, um, a girlfriend at a different high school in a different city. Okay. And he had a girlfriend at the school that we attended and this girl, um, she ended up, um, trying to pull me out of the car and telling me like, you know, she had found out what had happened, whatever story he gave her. And she, you know, her feelings were hurt and she was very upset and she showed, she thought she had to prove, prove a point in front of the crowd. Right. And so she's attempting to convince me or someone in the car to let me out. And I tell my friends to not open that door because at this point it's her and her friends and a few of the guys have now joined to, like, okay. get her out of the car. And, and so at this point, I fear my life. And I tell my friend, please just drive away. And um, the guy, the owner of the house, was on his way back from buying ice from the store. And so he, like, gets everyone to clear the path and the street. And there we go. We're off to go home. So I'm, I, get, I get to my house. And um, I live in this apartment complex. And I get to the home. Um, and there's one way in and one way out. Okay. And uh, I, I live near Camp Pendleton. So there's a lot of, like, housing units the way it was set up. And I live in the very back in the far right corner building. And my mom is walking towards the, the community mailboxes. And, and my mom... I see her and I'm like, it's way past the time I'm supposed to be home from the school bus, right? And I knew we were already leaving to uh, visit my grandmother's house that day and I'm late and I can see in her face, she is not happy. And uh, what I found out later is she had gone to the bus stop to get me and I wasn't there. Oh, So can you imagine being a mom and every child gets off the bus? Stressing out, freaking out, yeah. So I run out the car and I run into the home and I jump right into the shower because I'm hoping a cold shower will wake me up or yeah. get me back into some senses. And um, I'm in the shower. My mom like, like opens up the shower curtain and she's cussing and she's upset in Spanish. And she's like, basically like, what the fuck did you do? What's going on? What happened? What happened? And this look on her face. And yeah. I was like, mom. And she's like, are you drunk? And I'm like, no, why? What are you talking about? Like, you're scaring me. And she's like, get out here. And I remember like throwing a towel on and I go out to the living room and my mother opens the blinds and it's like a sliding door. And, um, outside of my sliding door is a small balcony and surrounding the balcony are apparently a few carloads of individuals had followed me home. Oh, and so they caravan to my home and, um, and they were like, we don't want problems, ma'am. Just let your let your daughter out. Don't worry about it. And my mom was like telling them, like, you need to get off this property. I'm going to call the cops, you know. And there's a few individuals to my right, you know, with guns pointed towards me, my mom, and now my little sister, who's 11 at the time. And she's right there. And, and these are high school kids. These are all high school kids. Okay. And um, I did not have the proper words to explain to her what had happened because I really didn't know what happened. Right. So I get dressed and my mom tells them to leave. And as they're leaving, one of the individuals tells my mom, like, don't worry, just make sure you kiss your daughter goodbye on Monday, because it's Friday. Kiss your daughter goodbye on Monday because uh, you ain't gonna see her no more. Oh goodness. And so I was, you know, determined, like I am not going back to school, at least not that school. Yeah. And so that weekend we, the car was already loaded because we had already planned to leave for the weekend. We get in the car and we drive to um, my parents' own property in Tijuana, you know. So we d- crossed, crossed the border from Oceanside to Tijuana and all I could do is sleep. Yeah. Jerry, so all I could do is sleep that whole weekend. I, 
I felt like somebody has stomped on my stomach. I felt like I had been running for days. My legs were weak. My head hurt. My neck hurt. I didn't, I just couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And, um, you know, that was Friday night, Saturday I slept, Sunday my mom comes in the room and she says, um, we need to talk. And I said, I have nothing to tell you. And she tells me, if we don't talk, you're going to go to school tomorrow. And I don't know what's going on. And I remember like, like, fuck it. What is she going to do? What's the worst she's going to do? Send you to school? You're going to, if she does, you're going to run away. Like I already had a plan. I'm going to run away. I'm 15 years old. So, um, I go, I go sit down with her and I proceed to tell her what I remember and it was actually less than what I shared today because I don't remember much. It, it, okay. Over the years, it's come back to me um, in a dream as I'm sharing when I was writing my first fourth step. It little, little, like little bits and pieces. Um, and it's, I wish I knew more and I could remember more, but I remember telling her what happened. And I remember her telling me like, like, how could you do this? Okay. Like, it wasn't like, Oh, babe, I'm sorry. I'm here for you. It was like, how could you? So she was blaming you for your circumstances. And I felt so ashamed and I felt like tainted and I felt like I had just embarrassed my family. I just want to cry because I've heard your story several times, but I haven't heard this part. And it was hard. My, um, my stepdad was basically, and I don't know for like the exact words, but he was very much like very disappointed you know um and it was hard because my stepdad couldn't i don't think he knew how to communicate like sympathy um you know he gave me the impression whether it was the words or his body language that he was just so disappointed and ashamed and it was kind of like i can't even look you in the eye right now like i can't i can't with you and um you know if you wouldn't have ditched like, this is what you get. Like, this is why you don't follow direction. This is what you get, you know? Yeah. And um, and that was at the beginning of the demoralizing feelings that happened. You know, I, the next day we come back to o- Oceanside. I go to the police department because I'm not going back to school. Um, they automatically send me down with a detective. You know, I'm 15 years old. I had, I've just been raped. They took my virginity. And I'm having to try to explain everything that happened with not knowing everything that happened. Right, right. You know, um, they, they send me to the hospital they do this whole rape kit thing um my mom doesn't want to be in the room with me so i'm alone on this examination table with like a medical professional and you know again my insides are very like i'm in pain and uh that was monday and i remember i got a call like wednesday and thursday and uh I don't know what happened between Monday and Thursday, but I get a call from the hospital telling me that the the rape kit had been exposed and compromised and I have to go back and do a second one. And at this point, I called my sister Violet. And this is crazy because she actually recently shared this with me that I called her and she was working at Unical and she said that she got my call and that I said, Violet, I need you. Can you come now? And she said that, and then I told her I've been raped and... I need you here. My mom doesn't understand what's going on and I I don't have no one else to turn to. And my sister's nine years older, so she kind of mothered me and raised me. Yeah. And I remember she was there, like, not even like, she said she went into the the stairwell with the coworker and told her, and all her friends knew me because I was like her daughter. And she said, Nikki's been raped. I have to go. 
And uh, she said she left. She went home, grabbed a bag, and went right to see me. And so that Friday, a week from the incident, I went back to that same hospital on that same examination table, and I relived that examination. And um, and it's so crazy because I remember laying... And it's all like sterile and it's cold in there and I'm shaking because it's cold, but they need to do this. And, but I had my sister holding my hand and the medical examiner, she like sat up and she said like, when did this happen? And I said, a week ago today. And she's like, honey, you are black and blue. Like it was like, and I felt so alone. Like no matter, even if I had someone holding my hand and someone else in the room, I felt so alone. Like this is what I get. Right. Because that's what they told me. Like if you wouldn't have if you would have just listened, like, you know, when a kid falls because you tell him stop jumping off the bed, you're going to hurt your head. And then the kid jumps and, and hits the head. Like I told you, like I felt like that. So at this point, you're starting to blame yourself. This is what I get. So um, obviously I have to leave that city because um, last time I saw these individuals, they had guns pointed at us. And so we pick up and we move. My, not just me, because of my demoralizing acts and selfish decisions and actions, my family has to pick up and move. And we move to Mexico, move to TJ. And, uh, you know, one thing I've learned is that everywhere I go, I take me with me, you know? Right. Yeah. And so, uh, and I change my playgrounds and playmates. I change from being, you know, in Oceanside to being in Tijuana. And it's, I adapt very well. I speak the language. I start going to school there. I meet an individual. You know, and I have, there's a lot of hymns in my story and a couple of hers. And this is one of them, you know, I'm 15 years old. My dad gets sick and he has a heart attack and he ends up dying in his sleep. I'm sorry. So like all this happened in the summer of 93. Okay. And um, so like my dad dies, my niece dies, my grandmother dies. I get raped. Like my parents basically are done with me, but I meet a him and this him understands me. He's there for me and he listens and he cares about me, you know? And my parents are like, no, 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 we're not doing this. We're just getting out of that last thing that you just had, that you just got into. Like, we're not doing this. And, uh, you know, um, I don't know how to love myself and I don't understand the value of myself or anything. So I, uh, sometimes bad attention is better than no attention. And he gives that to me. Yeah. You know, we develop, you know, this intimate relationship. My mom is not happy with it. And, you know, I end up basically, my stepdad catches him, my stepdad caught him sneaking into the balcony on the second floor. And my stepdad chases him with a gun down the street. It, you know, I couldn't make it up if I wanted to. Um, and then he comes back to the house and he's, and then he starts on me like, you, you know, you fucking this. And, and he's Greek. So he's talking, it sounds worse in his language, of okay. course. And like, you're not going to do this to our family. Like, basically you've already fucked us up. Like not in those words, but like your tainted goods, like what you're doing. All you do is bring bad into this home. And like all these, like, like not loving, caring, tolerant, patient, understanding, fatherly words. Right. You know, and um, now I going back, I don't blame him. I caused a lot of wreckage in my family, you know, and I remember um, his mother had just passed away um, the year before and he kept bringing up my dad like your dad's a fucking drug addict and you're just fucking like him. You're going to end up like him. And I remember telling him, like, why don't you just let him rest in peace? Yeah. Like, how would you like it if I told your mother, told you your mother was a whore? Like, she can't defend herself. And I, like this, regretted those words coming out of my mouth because I remember, you don't talk about someone's mom, obviously. And he grabbed me by my throat and he picked me up 
my feet are dangling. My mom's like, put her down. My little sister's crying. Like, it's just chaos that I continue to create. Like, again, I, I'm the creator of all this because I'm trying to control everything. And um, my stepfather's just reacting to how I'm behaving, you know, and I'm scared. So I'm reacting to how he's acting. Of course. And, I tell him to basically like, fuck off, leave me alone, put me down. And I, I leave the house. I run to this individual's house. Um, and this was like um, September, October. And I remember he, he comes over to the home and says, um, you're not allowed in the house anymore. And if you ever want to see your little sister, you come back as a married woman. We're not doing this no more. Like you've caused too much, too much sadness. You've caused too much pain. You know, my mother has had a few heart attacks and stroke because of me, because of everything that I've done in my life, you know, um, and my mother's probably better off without me. Like all these things he's just saying, like it, it's just spewing like venom, you know, and I'm like, you know what? Like F you, I don't want to come home anyways. Like I'll show you. Right. And um, and then he goes home and tells my mom, because I found this out years later, like, yeah, yeah, she, she doesn't want to come home. So. I have, so at this point, I'm 15 years old. All these losses I've had, you know, step, uh, father, niece, grandmother, lost my virginity. I, I have to leave this beautiful city by the beach to go to like Tijuana. And it's like not exactly a ideal place you want to be. Right. But luckily we had built a home there. And, you know, um, I'm a chameleon. I um, conform to my surroundings. So I, I did well with adjusting, but... My next thought was like, well, I'm going to marry this man and be a, a decent woman and I'm going to show them. And so at 15 years of age, <laughs> December thir 31st, 1993, um, I got married. So when everyone was having quinceañeras and planning sweet 16s, I was getting married for the first time. Wow. Um, it was a whirlwind of a six month period. And here I am now married. Yeah. I'm playing house with a man that I don't know for very much long, but he gets me, right? Air quotes, he gets me. And um, I am now no longer living with my parents, so I'm showing them. Okay. Um, I come back as a married woman, so they better respect me. Like, I feel I have this sense of entitlement, right? And I, I try to put everything that happened behind me, like all those, all that pain, yeah. all that, you know, I felt betrayal. Um, I didn't trust anybody. Like, this guy kind of soothed the blow for me, you know? And... Um, you know, that relationship was great. I mean, when isn't it not great when you're playing house, you know? <laughs> when isn't it not great, like the honeymoon stage? You know, unfortunately, you know, I don't have rules or regulations. There is no curfew. There are no boundaries. I'm living in this person's home and his parents, and he's the oldest of three boys, and, and his parents are, like, happy to finally have a daughter they never had. And so I'm taking full advantage of the situation okay. yeah. because that's what I do now. I become this taker. And so I'm married and I'm playing house, you know, and I'm drinking 40s and I'm smoking weed. And at this point, I'm going to school in San Diego. So I'm crossing the border every day and I'm partying with all the, you know, going to, the, to Ocean Beach and Black Beach. And I'm surfing and, you know, doing everything that teenagers do. Right. 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 And then I'm crossing the border back. I'm working graveyard at Denny's, you know, from 10 to 6. And I'm going to school from 9 to 12. And then I have nothing but free time. Yeah. Right. Because everywhere I go, I take Nikki with me. So, um, you know, about a few years into that marriage, um, because I don't know how to love myself and value what I have, right? Because everything I have, uh, I burn it down. You know, I stab, I stab it in the back. I, I just don't know how to, like, have something precious or worthy. So, um, right. you know, I step out of that relationship, you know, and I, um, I involve myself with my husband's brother, you know, and... Um, okay. I'm not proud to say that. I would say at the moment it felt great, but... And I kept thinking, like, how could something so bad feel so good, you know? Yeah. Um, 
I'm not getting the attention I'm I'm deserving from my husband at the time and his brother's doing his part. And so, um, you know, my husband ends up finding out, you know, he kindly escorts me into um, into the RV or the motorhome that was in the driveway where we would go in and like smoke and roll up our weed or have bong hits or whatever. And um, and he pulls out a machete. Oh, and he says, do you know why I brought you in here? And I thought, oh, here I thought we were going to have a smoke session, you know. You know, and he proceeds to tell me that he knows what I did with his brother. And I could not put with my... With a machete in hand. Yeah. And uh, I could not put my running shoes on fast enough, you know. And I remember, like, blaming him. Like, if you just took care of me. Okay. If you just gave me more attention. Right? Because, unfortunately, I bring all that baggage from that last part of my life right. into this marriage. Sure. Like... And I have to, like, my parents, now looking back, like, they were immigrants. They didn't know how to really parent. Like, Mm -hmm. if we, if I were to parent my kids today how they parented me, it's considered child abuse, Mm -hmm. you know? So I don't blame them anymore. I definitely blame them at the time. Right. And I definitely drank at and used at them for decades. But I remember uh, putting my running shoes on and leaving that relationship, um, you know, and I don't know how to be alone for a long time because I have this God-shaped hole in my heart. And I'm trying to fill it with whatever possible to numb and mask and escape that pain. Right. Um, the void of, like, not being good enough. You know, so, you know, moving forward, the, the disease of alcoholism manifests in, in, in crack pipes, manifests in, in uh, meth pipes, pookies, um, manifests in men, in women, in the lifestyle. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I develop friendships and trust with people that run the streets, and now I'm... I'm over here, um, you know, hustling and making money. One of my brothers gets out of jail, and I'm I'm bringing drugs and women into the neighborhood, right? Okay. And I and I'm respected, but my perception of respect is distorted. So if you fear me, you'll respect me. So I bring like my squad who carry guns, and so then you know, and and I'm I'm like 17, 18 years old, wow, you know, and I attempt to go home after leaving my ex husband. I attempt to leave him and go home but after not having a structure or some kind of like a format or a curfew for two years I last maybe two weeks at home okay at this point I'm a junior in high school I'm like I'm low small-time drug dealer in the in the bathroom stalls selling like meth and ecstasy or whatever anything to the girls okay to want to lose some weight or to party or whatever. It's very small time, you know, but I, I want more cause I'm greedy. So I, okay. I go to the, I go to the main person and you know, um, I have the gift of gab. So I get in really good with like the main person, the connection. And then I'm over here like driving, driving him around. Right. I feel super important. I'm doing these power lunches and even talking about it. I can't fathom like that being my lifestyle cause of how I live my life today. But, um, you know, I proceed to meet really, low companions and really, really high places really fast. You know, um, I, I remember like driving to do like my first major deal was like, like a few kilos and remembering like not even worried about getting caught because who's going to pull me over? Look at, look at me. Like, don't you know who I am? Right. You know? So at this point I'm back in Los Angeles, I'm back in my old high school and all my friends are either dead in jail or prison, pregnant or so drugged out that they don't, they're not even the same person I knew from junior high. 
And, um, you know, I ended up finding a lot of willing participants to pay for my drugs, get me hotel rooms because I didn't want to feel homeless. So if I had somewhere to stay, you know, um, but my disease of alcoholism and the residual effects of the, um, the sexual assault, I, I numbed it. Like I did, I literally put myself in situations where it could happen again. And okay. for whatever reason, sure. I want, you know, looking back, I think it happened again. It was just more of a, like a, of a date rape. It wasn't more like of a, oh my God, like that dramatic thing. It was like, right. no, no, no. Okay. You know? And honestly, looking back, it happened, it happened so many times. Okay. So coming into recovery and actually uncovering that part was really hard to like really wrap my head around how many times it actually happened and how I didn't even feel anything. Right. It, there was no feeling when it happened. It was like, I'm tainting good, so who cares anyways? That scared little girl was still in me, no matter like how old I was and how much money I was producing on the streets or how many guns I had in my possession or what block I lived on. Like, none of that mattered. I was still that scared little girl, you know? Um, so I end, I end up meeting this woman, and um, this woman is a, she's a drug dealer. I, we met at the Connections House for playing darts. Uh, you know, this was a different chapter in my life, and, and she's like, oh, I have a, my son. He would love you. And I was like, sure, like, bring it on. And I remember going, and, she, and she's a pimp, right? She, like, okay. tricks girls. She turns girls out. And I was, like, thinking, like, oh, this is something I can add to the resume, right? Because now I, now I looked at it, like, add it to the resume, like, Chalk it up. That way, when I'm old, if I ever make it, I can say, like, I tried that once, okay. you know? And I remember um, meeting meeting her son, and he had a girlfriend in the room, and I remember kicking her out and putting her on a bus back home, and I became his girl. Oh, wow. Just okay. like that. Like, no... That simple, huh? It was. It was. It really was. Um, here I am coming in. I'm, like, freshman on the block. I don't know anybody. Everyone wants dibs, but I choose the one I want. And that guy, girlfriend or not, you know, I, yeah. had, I had to have him. Um, and that's what my disease looks like. It manifests in, like, I get what I want with what because I have what I have. Because right. I have something you want in return. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a barter system. So people were like, oh, I never sold my ass for drugs. I'm thinking, yeah, you did. Mm-hmm. Many times. It's a barter system. So, And, you know, one thing that all my relationships and my disease have in common is that they are all verbally, physically, and mentally abusive. Okay. It may not start that way. And it may not. And the honeymoon stage is short-lived at this point, you know, with drugs and alcohol involved, with possession and cells involved, um, there's not, there's not much room left for like the honeymoon stage. So within a short period of time, I, um, you know, this individual's putting hands on me, you know, this, this woman, his mother, um, was dealing and moving a large amount of drugs in the neighborhood and the neighborhood, although they were coming to purchase drugs and although they were coming and hanging out and we were drinking and partying and playing darts and all that, um, they must've had a meeting in their neighborhood and decided this woman's making a lot of money and she's not paying taxes. His mother. Okay. So one evening, I want to say it was like my 21st birthday. They basically take us hostage, tie us up, and they take us away. And these are people that we knew. Okay. So I was like, hey, what's up? And they're like, hey. And we're like, what's up? And we go away in the car and we're tied up and 
I don't know what's going on. He doesn't know what's going on. Our pagers, because that's how long ago it was, our our night. The pager is like nine one 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 eighty seven, and at this point we were dealing as well. So okay. I think we thought our thoughts were, oh, she found out that we're selling and she's upset. Like one eighty seven, I'm gonna come get you. Okay. What we found out days later when we were we were let go of being hostages is um, they were home invading her house, and so the same thing was happening to her. The authorities. No. The neighborhood people. Okay. The gang, okay. Me- the gang members. Okay. <laughs> it was a home invasion. They came okay. in, robbed her, took some money, and then told her she was going to pay taxes. Okay. Uh, okay. She did not want to pay taxes, and she was on parole. So um, we packed up in the middle of the night, and we left to Bentonville, Arkansas. Good old Arkansas. <laughs> and I am a SoCal homegrown girl. <laughs> And you are culture shock. You are taking me to where all there is is Walmart's, chicken farms, and um, waffle houses. (laughs) So I'm a Midwest girl, so I totally get that. Yeah. So here I am, (laughs) taking Nikki with her. Uh, I live in a dry county, so I can't even purchase alcohol. (laughs) So we are going to State Line, and when you say liquor store, it is a liquor store. It is a store full of liquor. Yes. Like, it is not like this Arco or like, it's like a BevMo. Like, that's yeah. like a good example of like what it's like. Okay. Pick up some Powerball, purchase some alcohol, and head on back to Bentville, Arkansas. <laughs> that lasted about six months. Um, I remember uh, the physical abuse got really, really bad. Um, I fight back okay. because that's my story. I'm a fighter. I, you may get one or two in me, but it's not going to last. And uh, eventually, I'm, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. And I want out. I'm tired of this. Like, I miss my mom. I miss my sister. You know, God forbid rules, but anything's better than this type of life. Sure. Right? But I don't want to stop using or drinking. I just don't want this life. Okay. Again, I'm not willing to fully let go of something. Right. Without something in return. Yeah. So, um, cause I'm greedy, um, and I'm entitled. So I come back to California and, um, I, my best friend was a male and, um, and I remember him picking me up at the, uh, downtown LA Greyhound bus station. And, you know, I pick up right where I left off. Hey, we got a homecoming party. Let's go back to the house. And it's on and cracking. Like I don't skip okay. a beat. I'm in a house full of men. And for that moment, I looked around and I had that little bit of fear creep in like, this can all go bad. Okay. I don't want to be a, another victim. I don't want to be the party favor tonight. Not tonight. I've had a long bus drive from Bentonville, Arkansas. <laughs> and I remember um, telling my best friend, like, I'm just going to go to the room. And he's like, all right, lock the door because I'll be asleep. You know, he knows how his homeboys are, but somehow right. he still lets them in the house, you know. And so um, within a few weeks, I'm like back in action. I got some life back into me because at this point, I'm not using hardcore drugs. Like I'm not on meth. I'm not coked out. Um, I am drinking a lot. I'm smoking a lot of weed. And I've substituted all those hardcore drugs for like mushrooms, you know, and um, that's not bad, right? Because it's natural because it comes from the ground. Right. Right. This is how I this is how I justify it. And I remember um, being at my mom's house, like finally making it home two weeks later. And she's like, oh, you're back. Like, why is your hair orange? And I'm like, oh, because I I did a home streaking kit when I was in Arkansas. I look like carrot top. I'm pale because I've never left my house in six months because I'm too okay. busy getting high in the no bedroom. Yeah. 
and I'm back in Arkansas. I'm back from, from Arkansas in California. Um, I don't. My mom says I look like a cancer patient. Like I mm. had tweezed my eyebrows out. My eyes were sunken in. I literally was wearing leggings under my pants because nothing fit with the belt. You wow. know, yeah. um, and I was I was like 80 pounds, like sunken with, with clothes on. And um, she breathed some life back into me long enough for me to feel well enough to go back out there. Okay. At the time, um, I didn't know what was to come, and I really didn't care. I was, I was in it to win it, and let's like go home and go hard. And I always told myself, like, I'm going to die like my dad. I'm going to live hard. I'm going to play hard. I'm going to die hard. Okay. So the second I was able to leave the house because they were trying to keep me home, I was like, I'm going to go have breakfast. That breakfast, it turned into meeting another him, okay. which was my best friend's friend, which ended up being my second husband, okay. which ended up being my kid's father. Okay. So I meet this guy. He drinks like me. He smokes like me. He sells drugs like me. He, he's all about my get down. He's the guy version of Nikki. Like I have, I have met my match, guys, you know? <sighs> You know, who would have thought that uh, September 3rd, 1999, the day we met, would have changed my life forever because, in a sense, he saved me from me because he didn't okay. like hardcore drugs. But what it did is it put me into a different lane of lifestyle. Okay. I was no longer the junkie. I was strictly just making money. And with money comes a sense of power. Mm-hmm. And when the sense of power comes, this ego-driven lifestyle where, like, you, you feel untouchable and invisible. And here I am. I'm five one and three quarters, but my ego is six three. Like I'm all about it. Like let's go. And um, you know, I'm the getaway driver. I'm doing those power lunches. I'm familiar with this lifestyle. It's just next level. No more nickel and diming. You know, he comes from a great family, so I kind of get the best of both worlds. You know, in a sense, I'm already living a, a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde lifestyle. You know, I'm at home with his parents, and we're home making home cooked meals, and we're doing Sunday fun day backyard barbecues and but during okay. the week we're we're out there you know okay. doing doing what they do out there on the streets and um you know three months after meeting this man i find out i'm pregnant okay and it, after all i have been through they told me that i would either that i would probably never get pregnant because of okay. the, da- the damage that had been done to me and um and i was okay with that because i would i already knew i would not be a good mother like i could barely take care of myself you know, and um, so three months after meeting this man, I found out I'm pregnant. And three months later, you know, he 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 puts a ring on it, right? And uh, I thought, like, man, maybe maybe I am worthy of love, you know, because I thought finally someone's gonna wife me up, because you know. And then, but then the disease tells me, my head says he's only wifing you up because you're having his kid. Okay. Right. So I'm still not fully worthy of that about that life. So. Um, you know, six months into that, I get married, and three months later, that I'm giving birth to my firstborn. You know, and um, all the drinking and using, I thought I'd never get pregnant, and here I was. I'm 21. I'm pregnant. I don't really know what love is because I don't love myself. How am I right. going to love this man? Right. But I thought maybe this was God's way because God, my God, is punishing. My God is vengeful. My God is out to get me. But maybe God is saying she probably needs a break after all this loss. <laughs> So we're going to give her this child and we're going to put this man in her life. Who's going to give her this like family hope. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of hope, right? Just, just throw me a bone, man. So I'm, I'm wifey. I'm mom, you know, um, during the pregnancy, it was high risk. Like all these things are happening. And then I go again, that's what I get. 
Okay. All the drug use, this is what I get. Drinking okay. while pregnant. Because I know, you know, a normal person would stop drinking and smoking weed when they find out they're pregnant. Sure. An alcoholic moderates their use. So I'm like, okay, I'm not going to drink 40s. I'm going to buy like a can of beer. Like I'll buy a 12 pack and I'll drink one or two, right? Okay. And then the stoner in me says, well, you can't have bong loads anymore, but you can take a hit or they can shotgun you a hit, right? A normal person, person doesn't do that. Right. So um, I give birth to my firstborn, you know, his intestines are hanging out of his stomach. It, it's, it's a medical condition where the abdominal wall doesn't form all the way. Of course, I blame myself. Like, this okay. is what I get for drinking, using, and doing acid, and doing shrooms, and not stopping. Right. But you got to remember that I don't have the tools to stop, let alone stay stopped. Right. I may go to sleep, but, that, but that's the only way <laughs> I'm going to stop. I may run out, which... Hardly happened. Hardly. I made sure of that. I controlled it very well. So here's my son. Intestines are hanging out. I have a C-section because I'm high risk. You know, everything you can think of, of those really bad feelings are happening. This is what I get. You're a bad mother. You can't even have a healthy baby. Like, yes, you're tainted. You can't even have a, 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 you can't even have a perfect little boy. Like, all these thoughts. And so that shame, that guilt... The resentment, the anger, it's, I am like, it's, it's running through my veins. I'm mad at myself. You know, I have a C-section. They end up taking my child to a different hospital. So for the first four days, of, four days of his life, I don't even see him. He's at Children's Hospital of LA. Okay. I'm at, I'm at Presbyterian Hospital in Whittier. And um, nobody cares about Nikki. Everyone wants to see Junior. <laughs> so everyone's at the other hospital and I'm in this big old suite and no one's there. And so I feel alone. Of course. Literally, figuratively, however you want to look at it, you know? And I remember my husband bringing me a video of him. And, you know, he's got an abroviac in his heart. He's got a tube down his throat, which is, you know, taking all the bile out. Because he can't even eat. He's got this plastic xylem sewn to his stomach, which are keeping his intestines from getting infected. They have his arms tied down like baby Jesus because this kid's a fighter. He's pulling tubes and, and, you know, (laughs) needles out of his arm. Um, He does not look like a healthy little boy. And so I feel very, I, I am filled with guilt and shame and I can't even really be happy. I'm happy he's alive. Right. But there goes that one little broken, half-assed prayer like, God, if you just let him live, Mm -hmm. I won't use anymore. And I know I didn't mean it. I just wanted him to come out of the hospital. Right. So I finally get to go see my son. You know, his head is swelling up from just, you know, they have to turn his head right and left every like hour to two hours. He's sedated because of the pain that he's in. Like, like poor child, you know, right. um, born into active addiction, born with a medical condition and a, and a deformity of his stomach. And I don't, I can't even hold my son. Yeah. I, I can touch him, but they're telling me where to touch him. And I don't know how to, I don't even feel like a mom right now. You know, right. most kids are handed to their mother and you, you know, so there's that disconnect and so they send me home with a breast pump and go ahead and produce some milk. And, you know, and in the course of that time, like I, I took certain courses to, to like to, to lactate out of this and that. And 
But I'm just like, I don't know what's going on because right. I'm, I'm drinking, I'm smoking still because now I have a reason to mask. Now I have a real reason to mask and escape those feelings. Okay. And my mom's just like, the look I get when she sees her grandson and, and my sister's crying when they see their nephew, like, it for me, because they never said it, I felt like once again, I let them down. I feel like once again, I was a disappointment. I was not good enough to even birth a son, you know? And so, um, you know, I did what I was told to do. Obviously, I don't stop drinking and using, but I end up, my son comes home, you know, he's, I finally get to hold him in the hospital. They clamped all his tubes and wiring together, and I got to hold him when he's like 19 days old for the first time. I'm 22 years old, and I, they snapped a picture, and I have it in his baby book. I, I look sick. I don't look healthy at all, you know, and you can look into my eyes, and there is nothing there. Because I thought, like, what am I going to do with this? Yeah. Like, God, I don't want to have a sick baby for the rest of my life. You know, at six days of age, they they pushed everything into his stomach and they sewed him up. And, you know, this little boy comes home at on his 30th day of being born. He comes home. And when he came home and felt real at that point, I felt like he was this miracle baby. We had so many denominations and churches and walks of, of worship praying for this kid to yeah. live. And he lived. So at one point, for like a very small portion of my like thought was, well, maybe God ain't so bad. He, he heard their prayers, not mine. Okay. Maybe I'm not worthy of prayers being answered. And so I, I, this kid was, like, as I looked at him, he, he was a miracle. Like, man, you should have seen him when he came out. You should have seen him in the hospital. And here he was, not, not, a, not a wire, not a tube attached to him. And he was whole. Yeah. You know, and, and I could hold him in one hand. He was so little, you know. And I remember, like, the fear creeped in. Like, how am I going to, what am I going to do? Yeah. Right? And, you know, the aunts and moms come in and they're telling you how to do things. And Of course. You know, because that's how they do it, you know. And, and I had this little boy, you know. It didn't take long before my husband was like, okay, you got the baby. Okay, I'm gone. And he, now he's out there doing what we were doing without me. Okay. So now I'm feeling left out. Life keeps going. Yeah. <laughs> so he's out there doing what he's doing. You know, unfortunately, um, he gets attention from other women because I'm, okay. you know, I, I have a mom bod now. I'm, I'm breastfeeding three, four times a day, probably right. more at early, you know, early when he first came home. And I don't have time for him. It's not about this baby, right? And all I can recall is um, the lack of attention, feeling neglected, yeah. you know, no longer that spark because that honeymoon stage is over, you know, and, and it didn't take long for, for him to find, you know, to step out of that relationship, right? you know, and uh, for him to deny it. Yet when people change um, their routine, it's hard for them to hide mm-hmm. something, especially when you know that they're doing all of a sudden something changes. Right. They come home smelling a certain way. Why do you have glitter on you? It took you how long to come six blocks home? Like, you know, yeah. like hours. So, um, I don't know what to do. So I'm at home and I'm now I'm drinking and using. And when I'm drinking and using on those times, I'm like pumping and dumping, right? Because I'm thinking. Oh. So my kids, like, you know, it's, it's, okay. it's the, um, it's the distorted perception that if I just, if I'm going to drink and use, I'm going to pump and dump this one, but I'm going to give them the next one. So I'm okay. still feeding my kids like alcohol and, and weed, right? right. So, um, 
you know, at about four years of my son being born, um, I'm tired of being the other woman. You know, I'm upset. So out of spite, I step out of my relationship. Okay. You know, uh, you know, I know now that that's a form of disrespect, of immaturity, of insecurity. I know that I had, I was incapable of being that wife that he needed. I was incapable of being that present mother for my son. But at the moment, it's like I'm gonna get you before you get me. Yeah. You know, that relationship once again turns very toxic. I'm being called out of my name. He's not coming home because why come home? All you're going to do is nag and bitch and complain. Yeah. Uh, but I tell him I wouldn't nag and bitch and complain if you just came home, you know? So it's like that catch-22. And about seven years into that marriage, um, I I have another son. And it, I call, I, I would always make fun and call him the makeup baby because I figured this would help us make up and things would be better. Yeah. You know, and what I didn't know is that at that point, God was definitely throwing me a bone. Like he gave me this amazing little boy. Oh my God, this amazing little boy that, um, that is such a sweetheart. He's the one that every morning tells me, how did you sleep? Okay. My Jacob, you know, and, and every time I come from work, he says, how was your day? You know? And, um, the sweetest thing, he is just all, all good that has ever came out of me, came into that little boy, you know, unfortunately my older son saw a lot of the fighting okay, and the verbally abuse and, and actually, you know, got, you know, Remote controls thrown at him, sandals thrown at him, go get me a beer. And then Jake, you know, my older son would say, I don't want to get you a beer, dad. And he would get scolded for not getting up and getting his dad a beer, okay. you know. So yeah. he got the grunt of that. Um, so at this point, uh, I've been into this relationship for seven years. I have my second child. And I remember um, not being happy. I was miserable. I was depressed. I started taking... Um, medication for depression okay um because feelings come up and i don't know how to process feelings i don't have the coping skills to process feelings my mother never taught me how to process feelings okay she told me two things and and she says she says more but i remember her saying don't get pregnant and don't ever rely on another man make your own money okay that was it like survival kit i'm keeping that with me it's going in my back pocket so i don't know how to process feelings i was never taught to do that and if i did it wasn't listening mom i'm sorry you know <laughs> So I'm about um, 20-some years old. I have two kids, and I'm basically a single mom. My husband's never home. You know, um, his, his business of street pharmaceuticals is booming, and I am stuck with two kids at home. My words are, that I use are, I'm stuck at home. But really, i got to be with my children, right? right? That's how I change my thought process today. Okay. But I'm stuck at home with these two kids, and I'm going to work. And I'm, I am somehow dysfunctionally functioning, right? I come home and um, I don't want to be wife right now, but I'm kind of have wifely duties. And so everything's done kind of against my will and it becomes a chore. And, yeah. and, if, and if I don't, don't worry. Like, you know, his words were, don't worry if you don't, someone else will. Like, yeah. So it's like, like I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. Many Many, many of nights I would cry myself to sleep. And that's the only way I would fall asleep. You know, um, soon after I had my second son, I developed a craving for methamphetamine again, you know, and I picked that up and it definitely is like riding a bike. I quickly progressed into, I knew what to do. I knew what head shop to go to, to get the pipe. I, you know, I went to my brother's girlfriend because, or I went to my brother and told him it was for a friend. And that's how he got it to me. He didn't, he wouldn't have gone for me if he knew it was for me, you know? And I remember like 
um, telling him I was going to go. And then I convinced my friend to do it with me because it wouldn't make me feel as bad if I was doing it with someone else. And, and just like that, I woke the beast up and I am now fully like physically addicted to methamphetamine. Okay. And I don't know about you, but I can drop 10 pounds like in a day. Like I literally, it sucks me up. I start to pick my face. I'm picking at my hair. I have patches of missing hair on my head. My skin gets really clammy and see-through. Like it literally transforms me into like, not a vision for you for sure, but, <laughs> but unrecognizable. You know, I get super pale and it's hard to hide it, you know? And what I would tell my husband is, oh, it's the medication. Okay. It's the medication. Oh, I didn't choose, I didn't want to eat lunch, I, I drink. And it, he's okay because I'm an alcoholic and so is he, so it's okay. But eventually, like, I go back to wearing leggings under my pants because I've lost so much weight. It sucks the life out of you, you know? And, um, and I'm working at a cancer center and I'm um, like, literally, I am Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde again. I'm being this professional, medical professional. And then I go home and I'm like this um, disgruntled wife and this neglectful mother. And, and my mom moves in with me and God bless her. She's my big, was my biggest enabler, my biggest enabler. And she, um, she's cooking, cleaning, folding clothes. She's doing everything except sleeping with my husband. She's literally holding it, holding it down for me. Okay. Cause I, at this point, once I get home, I, I need to get dressed, changed and like head out to the next party. Like okay. I'm no longer that mother. I'm, I'm reverting like, well, he's gone. I'm gonna leave before he comes home. Everything's out of spite. Yeah. You know, um, I get myself caught up with an individual, you know, I step out of my relationship, you know, I end up having to, um, correct something, you know, I end up getting pregnant out of my marriage and, uh, I have to end up aborting that child, okay. you know? So, um, I, I live with that shame and guilt for so long because, um, you know, and, and I'm at the point now where I haven't made an amends to my ex-husband because I thought I had to tell him what I did. You know, my sponsor thankfully and gracefully has taught me, you know, how to amend something, you know, and it talks about in our literature, you know, we don't want to hurt them or others, right? you know, we don't want to cause more harm. We don't want to provoke confusion or anger or resentment in an amends process. So after that happened, um, I was actually just done with that relationship. And my husband was being very verbally abusive to my older son. And my older son was having night terrors. He was um, wetting his bed. Um, he would react like I would, you know, whether it was emulating my behavior, but we would flinch when my husband would walk in the room. He was just like a bully, yeah. you know? And I know looking back that I allowed that, you know? My part was that I allowed it. I didn't have a voice yeah. to say like, no, that's not how we're doing things. You know, I didn't know, yeah. you know, I felt that if he leaves me, I would lose everything. And how was I gonna like not live with the lifestyle that I have, you right. know? And what I realized coming into program is that he would give me tennis bracelets, a, a new car. He he would buy my love and, and, you know, all the money, property and prestige, right? The house, the car, the shiny objects, more weed, more money. I, I would get stacks of money and yeah. I would forget about it. I would let it go. I would brush it under the rug, you know, and there came a point where I was like, I, I found a video on his phone and I left him and I left him for about a year, but I didn't have anything to fill it. So I went back to him within a year. Okay. And so here I was, my youngest son is almost three. 
My older son is about 11 and I'm just done. At this point, my husband is growing. He has grow houses. Back then it's illegal. We had, we were cultivating marijuana in 2011 and he was stealing electricity. And believe it or not, that, which is such a blessing in disguise, was something enough to spark an open investigation with the Department of Power. And then they reported it to the local police department. Mm -hmm. And hence, it started a surveillance team. And that led to uh, July 12th of 2011, that really (laughs) loud knock on the door. And these amazing men in bulletproof vests came in, right? And the night before, we had had a really bad argument. And I I had already said I was going to leave him when the kids finished school in June. And here we are, July. I haven't left him. Okay. Because I don't have the courage to change. Okay. Right? Gotcha. I don't have that. I'm I'm a coward because if I leave, what's going to happen? I have this false sense that I'm dependent upon him, but really, he's never home. I'm really doing this on my own. Right. And so these men come in and they arrest him and, and they find, um, you know, drugs and they find firearms and they detain him. You know, my home is in shambles. Literally, there's canine unit. You have DA, you have local authorities. You know, the biggest thing that I can remember of that day that I will never forget the, the vision, like that visual of my children having red dots on their foreheads from yeah. these, the authorities' guns. And I, I want to say I don't think they thought to put the guns. I think they were just trying to figure out where to point. But my, my son, who's 13 now, will tell you he remembers looking towards the officer um, and seeing the red beam. And that's kind of crazy because he was four when it happened and he remembers that like if it was yesterday. Right. And he will say it very like nonchalantly matter of fact, like, oh, yeah, the red dots on my forehead, like the way he processes and he heals. And so that day, it, it was a Tuesday, and that day I um, had a really big meeting at work and I had to miss work. I was like, oh, I'm not feeling well. I still couldn't be fully honest. I wasn't going to tell my boss that I had DEA at my well, door. of course. <laughs> Sorry, my home's being raided today. I'm not going to come in. I might make it by lunch. Like, no, I was like, I can't come in. The kids are sick, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, so the house is raided. My husband goes to jail. And my mom packs a bag for the kids and takes them to my sister's house. And my older sister's a born-again Christian. So I was like, yes, take them there. So if they ever do a follow-up call, they're going to know that they're safe because my sister's a Christian. you know. And uh, that was my thought process. Uh, it was a Tuesday, so I called my best friend that I've known for years. And I, and I picked up the phone, and she's like, are you okay? And I said, no. And she said, I'll be right there. That was a conversation. She shows up. We smoke a joint because okay. those are my coping mechanisms. I right. smoke weed <laughs> to calm down. Um, and we leave to Taco Tuesday at Taco Surf at Sunset Beach. Like that, that's how I dealt with situations that baffled wow. me. Okay. And the month before, in March, not that month, but in March, months before, my son had eaten all the frosted flakes. And my husband had pushed my son into the door on his way out to school. And my son had gone to school crying that day. And the teacher said, what's wrong? And the teacher, and he told the teacher, my dad pushed me into the door because I finished the cereal. Well, that lady called the anonymous hotline, which prompted them to have DCFS come out. So this is March of 2011. So here I have a social worker on my case coming to my door, interviewing us. Like, I'm like interviewing the kids, like, this is what you're going to say, right? Because God forbid you say something that's going to like 
really open up a case on us, right? And uncover everything going on. I even told my mom what to say. Like, okay. mom, you know. I'm, You're in control. I'm in control. <laughs> and um, this was March. So by the time July came, the case was open. But they had like, okay, well, nothing here. Thank you so much. It's a standard procedure. We have to open investigation. I yeah. hope you understand. Here's my card. And I and she's like, do you have anything, any questions? And it's funny because I remember telling her, she was this really young, pretty social worker, and she looked really good. Like her skin was clear, and she smelled good, and her hair wasn't like hay like mine because I was on drugs. Yeah. And I was like, this bitch, like I was judging her. But something told me, Doris. She said, when she said, "Is there anything? If you ever need anything?" And I was like, actually, you know. You mentioned something about parenting classes and, um, you know, my parents are both immigrants and, you know, I I was thinking like it wouldn't hurt to take a parenting class, but I said it with the motive of, so my husband can be a better parent, right? Oh. Because I'm codependent, like, oh, he needs it, not me, but I will be there to support him. Gotcha. And I remember we had started like the following few weeks, we actually started going to this parenting class where it's like mother and father and it's, it's like nine weeks long. And so by the time July came and the house was raided, that Tuesday, I had a parenting class. So I remember the house gets raided. I go to Taco Tuesday at, at Taco Surf at Sunset Beach. You know, I get burned because I'm drunk and I pass out on the beach. But then I get up in time and say, oh, I got to make it to my parenting class. Right. And I get to the class and I get through the and I'm I'm faded. So I'm like chewing gum. And I remember um, I smoked a cigarette to to cover up every the smell. But I smell like a cigarette, which, which I don't like them, but I do it anyways. And. And I get to the class and when everyone leaves, I have to tell the instructor like, like saving face, right? Because I'm not ready to save my ass. I'm still saving face. Like right. I tell the teacher, I paint this pretty picture and I say, oh, the instructor, I was like, oh, my husband and I had a fallout and the police got involved and he's in custody. So he probably won't make it back for a Making while. Making a little light of it. Right. More light than what it actually was. Right. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I said, but I will be attending. Like, don't worry. And I remember finishing off the courses. So in the middle of like the house gets raided, I've already started parenting. You know, the court sends me to more parenting, anger management, self-esteem classes. Okay. I didn't realize that I had a self-esteem problem. I didn't even know there were classes for that. There's classes. Wow. They instructed me to take a victim of domestic violence class. I didn't believe I was a victim of anything because I like, again, I had it coming. The mentality that I had was so distorted of how I thought. Right. Um, and then this awesome class that was called Recovery Dynamics, which now I find out it's like outpatient. Okay. <laughs> I was like, Recovery Dynamics? That sounds fancy. So I'm going to all these classes and I'm getting all these certificates. And then right before the certificates are done and I finish my Recovery Dynamics class, they're like, very good, Miss Galindo, here you go. And they hand me this like booklet, like well, what I thought was like a newcomer packet, sort of looked like. And they had all these like trifolded pamphlets, and and um, and then they had me this paper, and it has like thirty six empty empty like blank spots, and they're like, we need you to get a signature for every meeting you go to. And I was like, meeting? What kind of meeting? What are you talking about meetings? Like I'm done. Like here's all my certificates. And they're like, well, there's one more. In my mind, I'm like, oh, I need one more certificate. I can do it. <laughs> right? I can do it. In the process of all this, my children have been taken out of my custody. The day after the raid, my my Christian sister, I had my kids at her house. I'm at work. A detective Fernandez or Hernandez calls me and says, you need to come meet me. I said, oh, no, officer, thank you. You did your job. Thank you very much. And I remember I was training a new doctor, like triple board certified hematologist oncologist, like 
good doctor man she and i said and i was like i'm i'm sorry i'm i'm like trying to like this is what i am don't you know and the doctor's like you either come to me ma'am or i come to you and my first thought is like i'm saving face i'll be right there and i'm like mom get the kids ready the officer's gonna come and do a follow-up meeting with us like it's gonna be okay the visits he said it'll be short and i remember getting to my sister's and i kept my lab coat on because i was at work so they could see that i'm I mean business. I'm a professional. Right. I don't have time for all that stuff that he's doing. What I didn't realize is they were severe than seeing me too. They knew I wasn't doing nothing. That's why I didn't go into custody. Okay. What saved me is I had a job. What happened next was I found out that I was deemed a neglectful parent and my kids were in danger. Okay. And they had to be taken from my custody. I didn't know that was the reason why the visit was made. Apparently, there was no DCFS social worker the day of the raid, and that's why my kids did not get taken that day. Oh, okay. okay. So 24 hours later, thank you, officers. You did your job. Finally, a half a prayer answered. He's gone. And I get to my sister's, and the officer shows up. The social worker shows up with a bulletproof vest on with two officers in their full gear with a bulletproof vest. And I was like thinking, like, don't these guys get it? Like, that was yesterday. <laughs> you know, you guys totally missed the party. That was yesterday. And they sit down and I get asked a, a bunch of questions in regards to, like, just, like, random questions that made no sense as to what was happening next. Um, you know, like, how long have I been using and how long was I married and did I know? And, of course, I'm, I'm sugarcoating it. Like, oh, I know he smoked weed. And, you know, yeah, we did a couple, you know, but we used it socially. And, mm-hmm. and they already knew the answers. And they already knew they were going to take the kids. So the uh, social worker says, well, Ms. Galindo, at this point of the interview, um, I'm going to ask you to go gather your children's belongings and they're going to come with me. And I was like, what? Like, wow. what do you mean? What, what do you mean? Like, confusion? I'm not understanding. Like, I was under the impression you just needed a statement from me because I didn't, you guys didn't get one yesterday because you guys were just so busy. And um, they're like, yeah, based on what we found, Based on the information provided, based on what was gathered, you deemed uh, kids are in danger. Wow. You're a neglectful parent, and your children are going to now be in protective custody of the state of California, of Department of Family and Children's Services. And I could not even look at my kids. I remember turning to my mom and saying, like, Mama. And my mom was just... That same look of disappointment of when I was raped. (laughs) And I was like, there I go again. Letting her down. Disappointing her. I'm not good enough. This is what I get. And I remember telling her, like, can you go get the kids, their bags ready? And then the kids come in the room and they have backpacks on. They come into the living room and I... I'm numb. I'm numb and I don't know what to think and how to feel. And I remember just telling them, like, I'll see you guys in a few. Like, we just got to make sure everything's okay. I remember the kids looking back at me and I was like, I guess you could say that was the first time I truly felt powerless in my disease. I felt powerlessness. But it wasn't enough to get me to stop drinking or using. Yeah. It was not my moment of clarity it wasn't enough to say maybe there's a problem here so you know that's what it was like that's what happened and that's what it was like and what 
what happened next was uh, being told I had to attend a 12-step program. Okay. For the signatures or whatever? Getting my signatures okay. done. Um, every other thing that was asked of me was completed. I, was, I wasn't given the option of going into a rehab or detox. They said you can keep working as long as you randomly drug test. So I was randomly drug testing. Uh, my kids were in protective custody, so I was getting monitored visits um, with a like police escort. I wasn't allowed to see my kids for more than two hours every okay. other week. They were in protective custody. Yeah. So I thought so they weren't with your sister any longer. So what happened? They didn't get placed with my sister until twelve days later. So for the okay. first twelve days, I'm still loaded. Okay. So I'm going to see them with a state appointed emergency foster care person. Okay. Um, at, at this point, we're going to court every third day. They finally agree. Everyone was able to life scan. And this is, this is, this is how I know God was on my side at this point. Everyone life scanned. Ideally, my children would have been placed with their father's parents because they have money. They have property. Okay. They have the prestige. They're deacons in their church. They save marriages. Everything looks amazing and it's great. But everyone in the household has to life scan. Fingerprint, background okay. check, all that. Thank you. I was going to ask you what life scan was. <laughs> so you life scan. They do all that background check. Okay. My ex-husband's grandmother was living there. Okay. So my children's great-grandmother. At the time, she was 96 years old. She had no fingerprints. <laughs> she was old. So oh they, she wasn't able to life scan. Yeah. Everyone life scanned, but my sister life scanned. She had a two-bedroom house in Fullerton. She had just gotten married. Like, she was a newlywed, like, that year, gotten married. And um, April, actually, she got married in April. She okay. had just gotten married. This is July, August, right, end of July. And, um, and the only thing that kept my children going to live with the father's family is that the 96-year-old grandmother had no fingerprints. Wow. And the joke, like, in court was like, do you think she's going to hide a, a gun in her wheelchair? <laughs> but because on paper, what he represented, their father, it, they didn't know what, to, what he was capable of. Right, right. My younger sister happened to meet the criteria. They kid-proofed the house. Okay. They passed life scan. And 12 days into the... Um, the process, my children got placed with my younger sister in Fullerton, California. Like, I thought, why Orange County, God? I was living in my sister's couch in Inglewood because I was told not to go back to the house that was raided. Okay. I was told that the amount of drugs that they had and firearms had, that had been removed from the streets, that someone was going to come looking for me. Okay. And so, therefore, to fear my life and to not come back into town. So, it was an exuberant amount, apparently. Yeah. Okay. It was on the news. I, I have a news clipping somewhere just to have as a memory. But um, my children got placed with my younger sister, Joanna. And, um, you know, that was the best that could have happened to them. My sister was going was a churchgoer. They, they really got reorientated into what life really is. They had a okay. structure. They had a bedtime. There was time. There was a, everything had a time, and in my household, I was never home. So right. whenever I came, if I got home late, I would wake them up to talk with them. Like I didn't even respect them at times. Okay, I didn't respect them in general. And I remember um, my sister. Um, it's so funny. My my younger sister. She's four years younger. So when all this happened to me when I was fifteen, the rape, the wedding, the this, 
she was 11. Wow. And um, her and I never really talked about what happened. Uh-huh. And um, at one point, I'm married with this with my first husband. And I remember she had walked in and we were smoking weed out of like a, a bear honey container or whatever. And I made her smoke with me to blackmail her so she wouldn't tell mom that I was smoking weed. No, you didn't. So she's wow. 11 years old and I got her high. At 11 years old. And so here I was 20 years later and she has my kids. And I thought, this is payback. Again, because my thought is like, <laughs> she's going to get me back. Yeah. She's not going to let me see my kids. But you know what? That, that young lady, she grew up and didn't let anything that happened to us as kids or me affect her from living a normal life. That's good. You know? So Joanna has custody of my children with her husband, and she's taking them to doctor appointments and taking them to court, enrolling them in school as her relative caregiver um, guardian, and they're joining the junior, um, the YMCA, Boys and Girls Club. Boys and Girls Club, I was thinking of the word. And I'm like living on my other sister's couch. Okay. You know, I come into the program and I have all this baggage with me. I have all these thoughts and ideas of what's going to happen next. And all I know is that I'm going to end up getting the signatures done, get my kids back, close the case. I'm going to show him, their dad, and I'm going to shut their mouths up. Because at this point, they're all looking at me like I'm disappointment. Right. I'm a liability. And I'm not used to anyone having to take care of me. And I'm sleeping on someone's couch. Yeah. So I go into a meeting and uh, I meet a him. <laughs> another him and this is and this is part of my story so it's important that i want to share this i met an individual who had double digits that means he was 10 or more years clean and sober okay and i come in loaded i'm not i can't even put days together right but i'm going to meetings because my motive is to get that court card so if you're if you're in a meeting to get a court card signed it doesn't matter you're in a meeting if you're in a meeting to close your DUI case, keep going because you might hear something that you can relate to. Like yep. it's a safe place, you know? Yeah. And I would go in there loaded for the first 12 days. And then I ended up meeting my last monitored visit with my kids. I was up in um, like Rancho Cucamonga, Corona area. I don't remember. I remember I drove far, but I was high, so I don't remember exactly. Okay. And I remember I smoked before I went to that monitored visit and I was told like, what streets to turn on and whatever. And I remember when I got there, the lady was like, did anybody follow you? Who did you come with? Where are you coming from? And I was like, girl, I'm just here to see my kids. Like, wow. chill out. I'm still not looking at the severity of the situation. Right, right. And, she's, and we're in a public park and she's like, you sit there, your kids are going to sit there. And I'm, and I'm like, I had to ask permission to hug my kids because apparently people grab their kids and flee. Right, yeah. And I get, I can see why. Yeah, yeah. Like desperation, but I was more like, no, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do this the right way, right? Supposedly. So <laughs> I, I have my meeting with my kids, and then I remember my, it was really hot. I had this long summer dress on, it was hot. I remember, I remember hiking it up and making a nod, and the kids were on the floor on the grass with me. And I remember my older son turning to me with his beautiful almond green shaped eyes and saying, like, Mom, we don't need him, we need you. Oh. And that was my moment of clarity. That was what I needed to hear. And I didn't even know it. It wasn't the red dots on my kids' foreheads. Uh, It wasn't getting beat into a concussion. It wasn't being the other woman. It wasn't not being able to put enough drugs and alcohol in my body to not feel and realize why, wonder why it wasn't working anymore. Yeah. 
it was my oldest son to tell me that we need you. And I remember coming down the hill and wanting to reach for what was left of my joint, but not wanting to reach for that joint. And I've never had that really feeling. I've never been like, oh, I don't want to get high. I'm getting high. Never. I've always wanted to be high. I've always wanted to be drunk. You know, I didn't mind that part. I I never really got dope sick because I don't put a needle in my arm. I smoke anything I can in my pipe. I ingest, you know? So if it was bad, I would change what I was doing. So I remember I had met a him in the rooms and it was a man who had a lot of time. So I felt safe. And I remember calling him and he said, where are you? And I'm like, I'm, I don't know. I'm coming down the hill. And he's like, I'm going to send you my address. Meet me here. And I met him there. And I remember he was coming home from doing laundry at the laundromat. He's like, help me get my stuff up in the house. And then I remember I'm on the couch and he's like, I'm going to take a shower real quick and we'll go do something. And I'm sitting there going like, what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. I don't know this man. I had that thought where like, I'm putting myself in a situation. Here I go again. But I'm like, fuck it. Anything's better than where I'm at right now. And I'm looking around his house and I'm like, there's pictures of him and a girl in picture frames. And I'm like, what if his wife, or I don't even know who this woman is. What if this woman walks in the front door and I'm on his couch and he's in... I don't even know what I'm doing here. Like, I, I'm baffled. I'm like, what am I doing here? He comes to the shower. He gets dressed. We go and we hookah. Because I'm like, I really want to drink and use right now. I have a joy in the car. So we go to the car we t- and we take everything. And he's like, jump in my truck. And we went to a hookah lounge. Okay. And I hookahed all night until I wanted to throw up. And he's like, are you done? And I said, yeah. So part of my story is that I don't know how to say no. So me and this individual start kissing, right? And it progresses very fast, okay. right? Because I don't know how to not get what I want. And what I want to do is get out of my head. So I, I end up involving myself with this man that evening, right? I'm not sober. I, I got high earlier that day. Uh-huh. I am not even all there, um, you know, and that's what they call a 13 step. Right. A man picked up the phone and said, I'll help you. You know, I should have called a woman, but see, I don't know how to trust women. So I end up calling a man, which I'm more comfortable with. And that night I'm having sex with this man. Okay. And for the next three days, ladies and gentlemen, I proceed to stay in bed with him because I don't know how to do anything else. The second I get out of bed and let the sun hit me, I'm remembering who I am, what's happening in my life, the, the reality of what my reality is. And I remember walking into my first meeting that following Tuesday, three days sober. And that is when my sobriety date is July 25th, 2011. And my first home group was the um, Whittier Art Gallery on Tuesday night. And I remember um, everyone would shun this man and say, what are you doing with her? Why are you doing this to her? Let her recover. And I would be like, these bitches are jealous. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you thought that. Girl. (laughs) Go find your own man. You know, but here I am. I'm married. My children in, are, are in custody. At this point, still in protective custody. They hadn't been transferred to my sister's custody yet. I'm married and I have a boyfriend, you know? Like, I just can't get enough. But I recall walking into meetings and, like, the girls trying to welcome me. Mm-hmm. And I would be like, oh, nice to meet you. And I would be on his side, right? Because I thought I needed to have a man in my life because, you know, I... I don't know how to be alone. Right. So um, signatures get done, right? I, my, sister, my kids are now with my sister. I get monitored visits, meaning I have to, my kids, I'm able to see them in her presence. 
you know? And one thing she made very clear to me was, I know I'm your sister, but they're going to be watching me more. And so I'm not going to make this easy for you, Nikki. Okay. And I was like, Joanna, don't worry. Whatever you need, like, I'll sign my paycheck over to you. Whatever the kids need, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I get them back. I'm going to show you, sis. I'm going to show you. I promise. I promise. You know, and something told me, like, these were no longer broken promises. Like, this was the real deal here. So my ex-husband gets out of jail and he fights his case on the outside. My kids are in relative caregiver custody. And this man that I met lived in Anaheim. He was like nine minutes from my sister's house. So I thought, what a God shot. Why would God not, why would God not want me to be with this man? Look at how close my kids are. This is meant to be. This was meant to be. Yes. So there I felt like I'm not in control. And then someone started talking about God's will or Nikki's will in meetings. And I'm like, God's will. This is God's will. If it wasn't God's will, why would you put me in the path of a man who lives so close to my kids? Right? It was Nikki's will to live with this man, to live under this man. Right? Because I don't know how to, I don't have a voice. I don't love myself. I like what you like, mm-hmm. right? So I'm writing, I'm going into meetings, you know, I'm going to NA meetings on his coattail. You know, he does the whole dancing and activity in areas in Orange County. So I'm doing everything he's doing. And I'm, and I'm, I am loitering with intent to recover. That's and what cool. that means is that I'm going into meetings and at the cigarette break, I'm taking a long cigarette break. I'm not worried about the message. Okay. I'm going in there and I'm what I call lip service. I'm, I'm in there and I'm just trying to, you know, not be in my head. Right. Not be alone. Not be in bad company. You know, um, during the course of this time, I, I'm doing, I finally get an unmonitored visit, right? And I'll fast forward on this. So I get to the point where I'm in, I'm, I'm doing everything, my signatures, I'm running drug testing, I'm going to work, I'm going to meetings, I pick up a commitment, I'm the chip girl, I'm giving out chips, I'm celebrating milestones. That commitment kept me sober, kept me accountable every Tuesday night, art gallery in Whittier, I'm doing it, I'm part of something I feel part of, I feel the love, I still don't love myself. But I feel the love that you guys are trying to give me, you know, and um, I do what I do. I, I'm going to court. I'm, I'm doing it. It's like this. It's almost like a vicious cycle, but it's, right. like, it's a healthy cycle. And I yeah. remember going to court. And I remember um, the judge would always say, like, come back, you know, our next hearing. Uh, we'll talk more about release of the kids into your custody. Right. And I remember going to court. And I would I would be in meetings and I would bitch and complain in meetings like they keep telling me I'm going to get my kids back. You know, and then the old timers or the older women would say, like. You know, work on Nikki. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, and collect them tools and put them in your tool belt because when you get those kids back, your life's going to change again. You know, so be careful what you pray for. And I remember it was February 24th, 2012. It was a Friday. I go to court. I'm about seven months. I'm one day short of seven months sober. And business as usual in court. We wait forever in the lobby. We finally get in. It's like a four-minute thing. The gavel goes down and we're done. You know, and that day the judge says something I've been waiting to hear, and that was, Miss Galindo, we deem you an exemplary mother, and today your children get to go home with you. And I remember just like, like crying instantly and thanking the judge. And I walked out and my sisters were crying you know, my younger sister who was taking care of my kids didn't tell me when she first took custody of my kids, but she had just found out she was pregnant. So she was literally pregnant 
raising my children for seven months. She had, she had found out she was like almost, um, she was almost two months pregnant, but she didn't want to tell nobody to stress them out. And if she would have told the judge or the court, they wouldn't have given her the kids because they would have thought it would have been too much for her. Okay. Okay. So she's pregnant, taking the kids to, to therapy, taking them to school, taking them to basketball practice, going to her, her classes, going to her doctor appointments. Like what a trooper that girl. So so I go to her house, and I remember the kids came home from school, and before that we had I had been able to get my own apartment because that's what my sister suggested because my ass wanted to bring bring move them into that guy's house, but she's like no get your place. So I get I secure an apartment in Fullerton, and I remember like we moved everything into the house, nothing new, everything was borrowed, hand me down. I went from having all this amazing money, property, and prestige, 17 cars, Italian furniture, porcelain floors, like crown molding, like to like everything was like, I might have an extra couch or you can borrow my, you know, my toaster. Like I had nothing. And I never, ever forget, Therese, my children walked into what was their room at my sister's house. And I remember Junior, like, he walked in and he, like, instantly went into the closet and he shut the door. And I was, like, what? like confused. And I was, like, at first I was, like, he doesn't want to come home because he knows it's better here. I had never given him a life that he deserved. You know, and I remember... My sister opens the the door and she says, Junior, do you know what today is? It's okay. Take your time. I know this is extremely emotional. Junior says, yeah. He's like, today's the day I get to go home to mom because she did everything she was supposed to. I went from thinking like wanting that instant gratification and it took me seven months to get that feeling of like finally I did something right and that's why I tell everyone like if you're in here to get your kids back don't stop because I'm going to tell you I came in here to get my kids back I came in here to get that core card signed I came in here to show them but I stayed for me, you know, and um, my kids were so happy to be home. And I had this little one bedroom apartment and I gave them the room and I slept on this really uncomfortable couch that my sister donated to me. I mean, the floor was probably more comfortable, you know? <laughs> and I remember like my first few nights just watching them sleep. You know, like, all that lifestyle, like, not being home. The money, the drugs, the just the infidelity, <clears throat> the abuse, the drug addiction, the alcoholism, the, the God-shaped hole. Like, those moments, you know, it's always the little ones that make it worthwhile. Right. And I remember saying, telling myself, like, don't fuck this up, Nikki. 
you know, there was a time, like the first month that they came home and I remember I made pork chops and I made like mac and cheese or something. And, and then the kids after the eight, they're like, can we have seconds? And I remember like, I only bought three pork chops (sighs) and I fucking freaked out. It was a situation that baffled me. I didn't know what to do. I called my sponsor and I was like, what the fuck am I going to do? And she's like, she's like, do you have food? And I was like, we ate it. She's like, you ate all your food. It's like, do you have anything in your cabinets? And I, I'm like, what? And I open it. I'm like, well, there's mac and cheese. She's like, make some fucking mac and cheese, girl. Like, right. Like, it's okay. And after that, girl, I made like six pork chops every time I made pork chops. Like, my kids were growing. You know, during the course that they were in custody, my kids, my younger son had a speech impediment. I had no idea. Jacob was four years old. No idea. Oblivious. Oblivious to the fact that my, both my kids needed glasses. My younger son had a speech impediment. Both were wetting the bed. The younger one was shitting himself. I had no idea. But God gave me those seven months to recover from bondage of self. So my biggest gift in all this is my freedom because I no longer hold myself hostage for like not being good enough. Once again, here I go again, falling short of expectations. You know, I learned now that I had to literally go through every single one of those moments demoralizing or not to get to exactly where I'm at. So as seven months sober, I get my kids back and my life changes. I have to give up that commitment at Tuesday night that kept me accountable and sober. I, I, my ex-husband puts it into a court order that I cannot attend meetings with my kids or take them around people in recovery because they're bad people. They're ex-convicts. They smoke cigarettes and drink monsters. Okay. (laughs) What was he? Right. (laughs) He who cast the first stone, right? Right, right. So, um, and at this point I have full custody of my kids, not physical, not soul, but I have parental custody and Mm -hmm. His monitored visit happened to be um, his parents. And the kids would come uh-huh. home and say, oh, dad was drinking, you know. And the mom would be like, be quiet. Well, their dad had told them, if you tell mom or anyone that I'm drinking, you're not going to see me no more and I'm going to get in trouble and it's your fault. So all oh. this comes. So for the next five years, we're in therapy. That's heavy to lay on children. So not only is the lifestyle changed. They're now dealing with, like, if you say this. Yeah. So they're being taught to lie and withhold information. Wow. You know, so recovery, the, the path, you know, is the, the tools are laid before me. I'm, I'm, I'm sober. I stop. I stay stopped. I'm picking up chips. I'm, a, I'm attending meetings when I can. I'm still in this relationship with this man who's got more time than me. And what I realize is I am not in the position to be in a relationship I, I turn a year sober. My kids gave me my first cake, you know, and I never realized when they were in custody that they had every 25th of each month circled. And my sister had told them that that's another month your mom is sober. And oh, I never knew that. That's how much I don't pay attention. Yeah. So at my one year sober, my sister came over. She had picked up my kids. I didn't even know because she's still on the emergency contact. She was still the main person main guardian um they brought me this little cake and so going forward every year since my one year my children give me my first cake no matter what it's our first our tradition the first one we got to start ourselves it's amazing yeah it's beautiful and they already know they, they've heard the story 
if they ever hear this, it'll be more than what they probably wanted to ever know, but um, that's okay. It's I only have one story, you know? Right. And um, so at this point, um, I'm, I'm 18 months sober, and I'm, I'm, I'm a slow, bridey kind of girl. Like, I put things in front of my recovery, and, and I want to stay sober over it, okay. you know? Um, I now know that no human power could relieve me of my alcoholism. I know that now. You could have told it to me in three different languages in early recovery. It would not have made sense to me. So I'm now about 18, 20 months sober. I'm coming up on two years and I'm, I'm like resting on my laurels and I'm at the point where I'm getting into a fourth step and I'm half-assing the fourth step. Okay. I'm not being thoroughly honest. I'm not putting pen to paper on what I should be. I'm filling in the blanks to make it look like I, I'm making it look really busy. But I get honest with my sponsor and I tell her like, I really don't love this guy. I thought I loved him. Like mm-hmm. I enjoyed his time. And then she tells me, like, I just think you're in love with the idea of being in love. And I'm like, mm, that part, you know? Yeah. And so I end up coming, I end up telling this individual at this point, like, you know, I don't think it's going to work out. You know, this individual ends up telling me, um, like, I'm going to kill myself, you know? And he's like 12 years clean. And um, I did not want him to take his life. So I reached out to some old timers in the meeting and I had them come with me to my house. He's like, I'm going to be waiting for you at your house. Okay. And he thought I was going to come home with my kids. I left my kids at my sponsor's house. I go with these old timers and my sponsor and there he is like hiding in the dark under the stairs. Like it was really weird. And um, the old timers were like, hey, what's up? And they're talking to him outside and I'm gathering what he tries to leave in my house. I'm gathering in a box and I'm like, here you go. You know, and, and what happened next is he chose to act out of character or he chose to character assassinate me in the rooms you know, and everyone, mm. and, and when anybody else didn't matter, what, what everybody thought it didn't matter to me, but I was more afraid of like, I was going to get rejected by my fellows. Right. Right. But you know, what happens is when you're with somebody who's new, you have not allowed them to recover, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone said like, what did you expect? She finally found herself. Right. And it's best to let her go. It's not meant to be, you know? And so, um, we hang around the same circle of people. We're in the same sponsy family. And it's really uncomfortable. Now or back then? Back then. I'm, okay. I'm 22 months sober. Okay. And then God, right? A God shot. I get an opportunity for a position that pays way more than where I'm at in the city of Manhattan Beach, California. And so I apply for the job. I get the job. You know, and that's what kind of brought me to the South Bay. Okay. I ended up moving to the city of El Segundo. I'm working in Manhattan Beach. I no longer have to worry about that side of town. You know, my meeting schedule changes. I'm now going to the Hermosa Bichelano Club. I meet you people, right? You guys. But the problem is, is that I'm two years sober, acting like a newcomer. Okay. Behaving like a newcomer. Therefore, I'm feeling like a newcomer. You know, I, I once again, I'm loitering with intent to recover. I go into meetings. You know, I'm talking out the side of my neck. I'm giving lip service, right? I'm finding willing participants in meetings, right? Because everyone's willing as long as you got, you know, the right gift of gab. Um, and just because we're sober doesn't mean we're cured. Right. And doesn't mean we're sane and doesn't mean we're not sick. Because right. some are sicker than others. I qualify. So, and this is my story. This is why I want to be thorough. Like, I come into rooms with two years of sobriety. I have a working knowledge of up to the fifth step. But I didn't work it thoroughly, so I'm I'm holding on. I got some reservations. Okay. You know, I don't want to get loaded. I don't want to lose my sobriety date. 
but I don't want to be as honest as you. Because if you really know what I was doing and what I was about and where I come from, you wouldn't want me. Okay. I still hadn't dug deep enough to unpack that stuff that was weighing me down. Yeah. So the half measures availed me. I could have been the poster child for it. Resting on your laurels, my face would be on the milk carton. I can tell you right now that it is, does not feel pretty to hold on to stuff because everything has claw marks when I let go of it. Right. So I find a sponsor in the South Bay. It took me like six months to get honest with her. It took me six months to finally say, like, check it out. This is where I'm at. You know, um, I'm hanging out with someone who's married. Like, you know, I'm still doing this. Like, yeah. But I'm not picking up. Like, me justifying is I'm not picking up. Right, right. You know, I have a commitment at this meeting. I got a commitment at every meeting. I'm like a service junkie. I'm being of service. So that should, uh, that should be better. You know, at least that makes it better, right? And she's like, it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. You don't have to live that way anymore. You know? And so this, this sponsor was really good for me at the time. She was an amazing tool in my tool belt. I was able to get through my steps with her. I was able for once in my life, and I didn't finish my steps until I was almost five years sober. Could you imagine the amount of pain, physical pain I was in for five years of recovery because I was holding on to shit that I was not willing to let go of? There was a lot. I didn't touch on a lot of it. It's a lot, but I will tell you this. When I finally let go and let God... I could talk about it on a group level. It used to be one-on-one. What I used to talk about, the rape and all the the sexual assault, I would only talk about it like on women's lockdown facility panels Mm -hmm. because I know like we all related. Right. But today, because of that woman helping me find my voice, I'm able to talk about it on a group level and know that regardless whether you judge me, look at me differently, feel sorry for me, praise me for being open and honest, none of that matters. Right. Every time I tell my story... It's, it takes less power. Like I know it no longer runs space in my head. It no longer has power over me. It no longer defines that little Nikki that was mm-hmm. scared back then. The feeling of feeling disappointed or tainted goods, not good enough, you know? And, and so hence I finished my steps, but wait, there's more. I get to sponsor women. That's where like I took a shift, like a complete shift in my recovery because now I have to truly walk that talk. Right. Because I get to be that example. You know, people, right. when they say, oh, we heard your story. It's like, it's like going to church and like preaching and doing all this, but not following the Christian ways, mon- uh, you know, Monday through Saturday. Mm-hmm. AA is a 24-hour life thing, you know. And people say like, if God gave you 24 hours a day, how many of those hours are you devoting back to your program and your God? Yeah. So I had to continue to do the work. So truly at year five to current, I've truly been practicing my principles in all my affairs. You know, I've been gifted the opportunity of elevating because my program, just like my disease was progressive, so is my program. Yeah. You know, yesterday's shower is not going to keep me clean today. I've heard you say that. Yeah. I like that. What like I'm doing that. in my program today does not match with the t- where I was at at year one through five. Right. You know, and, and at nine years of sobriety at... 43 years of age, you know, a lot has happened. I've gone back to court. I've gone full soul physical custody of both my children. I now monitor my husband's ex-husband's visits. I sponsor a handful of women, you know, but that's all because I decided to surrender to win finally. Drugs and alcohol is but a symptom. Yeah. 
you know, and in the process, you get these little nuggets where, where like I can talk about something and I get emotional over it because today I get to feel, you know, I've heard somebody say um, the God part of my program is like the water part of the ocean. It is everything to me. Yeah. Right. I invite God into everything before I come in, because if you leave it up to me, I don't have to get loaded to mess things up in my life. You know, I can do it stone cold sober. Yeah. And the book tells us that. So the 12 steps have given me this amazing blueprint, right, of new way of living. And then the 12 traditions keeps me safe from my fellows. It lets me know that, like, we don't govern. You're not better than me. I'm not better than you. Yeah. The only requirement is to be is a desire. I have to want to be sober. It doesn't mean I have to be sober, you know? Yeah. You know, and then it talks about um, that money, property, prestige, outside issues are not part of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, any, all anonymous programs. That's out there. We yeah. come in here to get sober, to get clean, you know? And at the end of the day, like, my responsibility as a sober woman of Alcoholics Anonymous is to carry the message and help mm-hmm. another alcoholic achieve sobriety. Right. Right? And how I do that, it's outlined in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't make things up. I don't demand you attend a meeting with me. I suggest it'd be good for you to meet me at this meeting so I can get to know you more in person. I make a suggestion that you should probably call me so we can get current. So when you do have a situation that baffles you and you're trying to explain something to me, I'm, I'm going to ask you, like, who's David? Who's Maria? Who's I know who you're talking about. Right. You know, but ultimately... There's a, there's a thing called the sponsorship pamphlet. And that pamphlet tells me what my role is as a sponsor and your role as a sponsee. I don't have to make things up anymore. I don't have to try to run the show. I don't have to control the situation. Right. All I have to do to, be, to stay sober is to be open, uh, honest, open-minded, and willing. Willing to go to any length to stay sober. Right. What that means is if I'm willing to wear a dress to a, to a meeting that says... The, the female speaker wears a dress, you know, sponsor somebody. It's going to help you stay sober, you know, be provide and display love and tolerance to the ex-husband. Do not character assassinate the person in the meeting who shares the same thing every week. Like right. there's so many, so many that can fill in the blank on what love and tolerance is and what my perspective on willing to go to any lengths truly means. Ultimately, my me willing to stay sober is exactly where I need to be. I need to stay willing. Yes. I need to be in acceptance because acceptance is the answer to all my problems, right? When I'm not in acceptance, I'm in fear. Like, what am I, why am I not acceptance? I'm fearing something. Yes. And so now coming up, staying, you know, being at nine years sober, coming up on 10, you know, uh, Nikki will be as willing as she can, but it's a 24 hour a day program. So today, you know, my desire to want to be sober is greater than my desire to want to get loaded or step out of my program and uh, lose my sobriety day. And it's not the ego and pride anymore. It's that this life, this life today, you know, not everyone gets to live two lives in one lifetime. Right. You know, I've been able to be, I've been restored to sanity. You know, my mother doesn't have to worry about what's happening to her daughter my children know where I'm at. Mm-hmm. They understand what Alcoholics Anonymous is. They prefer to not be part of it as much as I would wish to include them, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. They don't have to hear everyone's story. Right. They know that it has given them a life worth living, not their old life back. Nobody wants to go back to that way of life. We have a new way of living, a, a new design 
of how we can love on each other, you know? And you know what? Don't get me wrong. My life's not perfect. I'm a single mom and I've raised two boys and I haven't done things perfectly. I haven't done things gracefully, but I will tell you, I have been grateful for every hiccup, every obstacle, every time I've been stumped, you know, years and years of therapy, conjoined therapy and individual therapy for my children has taught me that, you know, um, I was very selfish and self-centered for a long, long time. I had to be retaught. I had to be retaught, re-hardwired on what it means to be not normal, but to live a life without stepping on the toes of my fellows, provoking confusion, resentment, fear, like anger, mistrust, like all these things that I lived and thrived off of. Right. So you talk about like thriving and living like this is what for my program is that is is an exact thing i am thriving in life i no longer exist i choose to live i choose to walk in the spirit of the light so with that i want to close i just want to say thank you i feel like this has been like a great therapy session i've had the opportunity to share with you a lot more than i probably have in the past but i know you've heard a lot of it and um and i want to thank you for the opportunity to um you know, to share my message and to share the story and to know that that hope stands for hold on pain ends, you know, and if I can, if I can overcome the addiction of alcoholism, of being a victim of domestic violence, you know, um, a survivor from sexual abuse, you know, from going from low self-esteem to having a self-esteem, you know, um, you know, all the money, property, prestige isn't going to, you know, it's going to divert you from your primary purpose and, you know, hope and pray that, you know, this, this reaches any one of you out there. And uh, I'm always willing to a phone call away. So if anybody ever needs to reach out, Therese, thank you for um, creating this safe platform to be able to remind myself that I have a voice and God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. Oh my goodness. We had laughs and we had tears. I don't know if you guys could hear us in here sniffling, but some of her story is tough to hear, but it needs to be told Mm. because there's other women out there that are experiencing the same thing that you've experienced that don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. And like I told you, um, listeners, her story has gratitude and hope. And um, that's why I love, one reason why I love this woman Mm -hmm. so much with her transparency and uh, I'm at a loss for words because I've heard your story, but I haven't heard the entire thing until today. And I'm just, I usually don't have a loss of words, but I have a loss of words. It's amazing. And I am very blessed to be in, I'm going to consider myself in your circle. Absolutely. So I just, I don't have words. All right. So I'm just going to get to another last couple questions and we'll yeah. wrap it up. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So after hearing your story who did you hurt most with your addiction nikki all right i hurt myself the most and i didn't even know it when i was told to do a fourth step i didn't even know to put myself on there when i was in the amends process i didn't even know i owed myself an apology I didn't know I was worthy of one. Right. So I hurt myself the most. So today I remember to put myself first and not in a selfish way. That's good. I heard the term tool belt. 
Mm. I use the term toolbox. Mm. Same exact thing. What is in your tool belt or toolbox right now? So my tool belt has become a tool shed. (laughs) It's a double wide, two-story tool shed. It's a she shed. (laughs) (laughs) My higher power is in there. My sponsor. My sponsor is an amazing tool. My sponsees are in my tool belt because, man, let me tell you, they help me stay sober and accountable. Um, My phone. My phone is an amazing tool. If you pick it up, it saves two lives. That phone call, man. My big book, my 12 and 12, all the literature. I think I've, I don't think I've read it all, but I have lots of reading material. Meeting directory, which now is accessible on your phone. Right. Right? Yeah. I have a 10-step journal that I use, which I keep separate from my step work. I have a journal that I've been able to put pen to paper, and that's where the magic is. Man, sometimes a tool builder is just uh, doing nothing. Right? Pausing. Yeah. Because uh, we think that there has to be action, right? Because we're a program of action. Right. Sometimes the only thing to do is nothing. Yeah. So the tool belt has definitely grown. You know, all the tools that are at our fingertips, not just um, what I've mentioned. My sponsor says that praying is a great tool, mm-hmm. you know? And you can't, like, put it in your box, but it's, like, you know, it's there. Meditating has been a big tool for me recently because when I pray, my higher power listens, and when I meditate... I get to listen. That's good. I've, I've been in the program for a little bit. I've never heard it that way. Mm. That's perfect. Yeah. Okay. It's that space for grace. We give ourselves an opportunity to just like quiet the mind. It's like equanimity. Equanimity is a, a loving heart and a quiet mind. And with my disease, my, my mind was loud and there was no love in my heart. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, there's so many tools in there, yeah. you know, sometimes putting on my shoes and going on a run. So my tennis shoes are in there because I need to let it out. You know, definitely working out has been a tool for me, especially in pandemic. Yeah. My wiener dog is my tool because he gets me out of the house <laughs> and I get to walk the bean. You know, my children. Yeah. I got here for I got here because of them. And they were one of the very first tools I put in there, man, because they kept me here. Like, right. I got to do this for them. I got to be sober. I got to get them back. And then once I get them back, it's like, oh, I get to stay. Yes. I've earned my membership. I have a desire. Third tradition says I have a desire to want to stay sober. Yeah. You know, and what kept me here is I paid my dues. Yeah. Right? By putting money in the basket, by carrying the message and raising my hand and participating in my recovery. (sighs) Service commitments. My service commitments are in my tool belt because I show up to CSR meetings. Um, I have commitments at my home groups. Okay. My step work is a tool. <laughs> One of my sponsees always says, if you pick up a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I make sure to put that hammer in the very back of my tool shed because I will smash everything to pieces. So there are so many tools, you know, laid laid at our feet our book says right. it and uh it's what we're, what the next step is is an action to bend down and pick them up yeah that's good thank you all right one last question mm-hmm. then you're free to run okay okay <laughs> do you think booze should be banned outlawed non-exempt well alcohol is a drug period yeah and i think when people try to control which our society does now mm-hmm. right you got to be 21 to drink it. Don't drink while you're driving. 
uh, do not have it on, you know, outdoor in public. But then you go to other states and you can walk around with it in your hand. Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you know, in, in Mexico and in Greece, you could be pretty much 18 to purchase it. But I can tell you, I've been purchasing alcohol since I was a little girl when I go to Mexico. Okay. And when I went to Greece, I was 18 and I purchased it. Yeah. So... I would I would say that should it be banned? Um, I don't feel like everyone in this world is an alcoholic, right? And we would be depriving the normies yes. that walk this earth from enjoying a drink or two, you yeah. know, celebrating a birthday or a milestone, you know. So if you were to ask me in early recovery, I would say absolutely because yeah. I could, you know, I couldn't even have sushi without drinking, you know. So I I didn't have sushi my first year of recovery. You know, but you ask me now is I don't think it should be banned yeah. because there's some normal people out there that actually like order a drink and not finish it. Really? And then not drive home. That is wow. Don't <laughs> drink when you're pregnant. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I mean, I know that I know that if I could, I would, but I can't, so I won't. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are finished. Thank you again. Thank you so much for being the lucky number three. Beautiful. <laughs> All right. So the podcast is edited by a gentleman named Neil Jackson. If any of you would like his information, just give me a shout out at breaking underscore chains at iCloud.com and I can give you his information. Check out the website. You can get the podcast there. You can buy some awesome stuff at www.breaking-chains.net. And with that, we're going to close episode three. It's a wrap. Thank you. It's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>